Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Christians versus Pharisees. That is the title of a project, or should I say a project, that my good friend from across the pond, <laughs> that my good friend from across the pond, that I've never met, by the way, and I'm only speaking to directly for the first time now, on, uh, what is it? It is December 22nd, 2020. Peter Bleakley. How are you doing, Peter? I'm very well, thank you. We're in massive COVID lockdown. My little region has managed to develop an extra virulent strain, so no one's speaking to us right now. Um, so we're, we're cozy indoors, weathering the storm. Enjoying the Yuletide spirit. <laughs> yes, <laughs> all by ourselves. <laughs> How is Christmas time in jolly old England now? Pretty dim. It's, it is. It um, is. Uh, Boris just cancelled Christmas. So we, we were promised five days of it. And then at the last minute, he pulled the plug um, very wisely, I think. We've, we've actually had a big uptick in cases in our area and it's, it's definitely escalating. So it's the right thing to do. But right. a shame nonetheless. <laughs> For future generations who may be listening to this podcast years after <laughs> yeah. the fact, well, if there are any human survivors on the planet to be listening to yes. this podcast, we're talking about the COVID lockdown it's it's been amazing i'm a teacher so we keep opening our school and closing our school and then opening it and it's it's been a high wire act for the last few months where are you located in england so i'm in the southeast i live in kent which is the county in the southeast sort of just outside london very nice Um, and this is where i grew up after being born at byu to british parents but they they fled the united states of america when i was one and a half um so i've i've grown up very british but with dual citizenship technically i spent some years of my early childhood in kent but that oh, was, really wow but that was kent washington oh there you go <laughs> i'm sure it was lovely <laughs> It was wonderful. Well, I will tell you, the reason that I have you on is mainly because I've become acquainted with you from mm-hmm. reading a lot of your comments on Facebook and different people's Facebook pages and being struck by how articulate you are, how witty you are, and how intelligent you are. As John Adams is reputed to have said of Thomas Jefferson, you have a happy talent of composition and a remarkable felicity of expression. Why, thank you. Um, What we tell the Americans is, of course, all of us here are like that. We all speak like Shakespeare and we're we're erudites and and witty and charming. Um, It's it's how British people compensate for having no sex appeal whatsoever. Um, So so we we charm people into bed. Um, That's basically our national talent. but no, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm technically culturally upper middle class in our feudal system here. Um, so not everyone's like me. Thank goodness for the world. <laughs> uh, but, but I'll take the flattery. Uh, thank you very much. Yes, as you said in a recent email to me, flattery will get me everywhere with you. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but the, um, so I, I, I came, you came to my attention in that manner. And then I thought, I want to talk to Peter Bleakley because I heard you also, I heard you also on a podcast. It was a thoughtful faith mm. with Gina Colvin. Yeah. I think uh, also has an accent though, not identical to yours. From my point of view, <laughs> she has an accent, right? Yes. By the way, so you know. She's a Kiwi. <laughs> <laughs> from over here in the States, on the correct side of the pond. Yes. 
You can say the stupidest thing with an English accent. Yeah. And it will sound brilliant. Well, I thought that's how I would be greeted in the deep south on my mission in Alabama. But it turns out that you do have a corner of your great nation who know that they're the most important and interesting people on earth. And and being British means absolutely nothing. I got no extra points for it whatsoever. Um, and they were just confused. Although we share vowel sounds, I found. So my friends who served missions in California lost their accents within about two months. Hmm. Um, but I came home relatively unscathed. I had no vocabulary left. I had about three adjectives left after two years <laughs> in Alabama. <laughs> but my vowel sounds were spot on because the 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 British colonized the South and and brought the slaves with them, and they kept our vowel sounds. Bless their hearts. So, I, I, I my my language was comparatively undamaged by the experience. Well, but, the only ad- but the only adjectives I had left were fetch, dude, and rad, uh, which I think is, <laughs> is, is more of a Utah thing. <laughs> uh, well, getting back to Gina Colvin, uh, she's yeah. absolutely brilliant in my estimation mm-hmm. and a wonderfully talented interviewer as well. And I heard you on there talking with her and perhaps some other person uh, about President Nelson's inaugural world tour mm, where he dropped yes. by England yep. on his way to other parts. Mm. After we carefully scrubbed Hyde Park Chapel with toothbrushes, apparently, um, which he referenced in his talk um, and kind of didn't realize that this was a bad thing, which rather alarmed me. <laughs> He's, he just talked about himself as the inspector general coming to have a look uh, which rather triggered us both because we have a queen. We're used to a monarchy and how if the queen is going to come visit um, New Zealand or or your school in Britain or whatever, you paint everything and you scrub things with toothbrushes uh, to get it spick and span ready for, for the royal visit. And that's kind of exactly how it all played out with, with the, the world tour to introduce the world to the new leader. Um, so we had a good chuckle about that. So wittingly... So wittingly or unwittingly, he assumed the role of a monarch. Oh, big time. It was absolutely fascinating. And I think maybe this is something that Americans don't quite notice as much. If you're part of the British Commonwealth, you we live with this all the time. You understand the rules of the game, as it were. And, and it was quite a, an interesting, sort of, not epiphany, because we're kind of used to this. It's not a surprise, but it, it, it was in a way disappointing that the leader of a church that's meant to be all about humility and Christ-likeness was lapping it up and receiving a lot of praise and just behaving as if it was normal. And I think one of the the difficult things about President Nelson and next President Dallin Oaks, if God doesn't cull him first, is that um, they, they're not so good at self-deprecating humour. I think the charm of Presidents Hinckley and Monson was that they were able to laugh at themselves and British people in particular love that. You know, the only reason we tolerate the monarchy at all is they are humble about it, weirdly. Um, if they were being arrogant, we'd just drop their heads off. Um, so we do not like our leaders to kind of be enjoying their power too much. We we like it when they realise the whole thing's ridiculous and they can laugh at themselves. And that doesn't seem to be a big part of their personalities. So I think they're their their sort of ascension to power was always going to be a bit of a challenge for the church, that they're just a different personality type. Um, I can think of also plenty of other reasons why they're challenging, 
Um, but we certainly saw that, that there was kind of no sense at all that all this leader worship was in any way bad or wrong. Um, and there was a lot of it, you know, his wife, Wendy in particular, it seems in every country they went to, were was talking about how great he is, how he, he spent the pre-existence sitting around with Nephi and Isaiah and the other great prophets, and now his time has come. And there was just no humility at all. And it, yeah, so we didn't take too kindly to that being um, re rebel Brits and Commonwealth members. And Gina got in a lot in trouble for it. I think that she mentioned later that that podcast ended up um, kind of accelerating things towards her experiencing church discipline. Um, yeah. I was not aware of that. By the way, for any of my mm. listeners who are not actually familiar with the contents of Wendy Nelson's talk there in mm. England, you're mm. not making this up. You're not exaggerating. Oh, no, no. It's, I'm understating. It was extraordinary. And... I, and I don't want to be cruel to them, but the, I think where people have so much power, they have to be accountable for their behavior and what they say, because how they frame things impacts millions of people's thought patterns and beliefs. And, she, you know, she, it, it, was, it was basically like he's married his biggest fan. You know, you get these celebrities who marry their number one fan. And it was a bit like that. And she was just going on and on about how amazing he was. But also what was really frustrating and and offensive actually was she she referenced and and she from what i've been there, no one's actually recorded their talks or that i did secretly um uh <laughs> in each country um but from what was written up in the deseret news and stuff about them they kind of said the same things in each place and one of the key talking points was this idea that um Wendy said she received two very distinct, powerful spiritual witnesses, like miraculous experiences, confirming to her that Russell Nelson was now the prophet of God. And she said, and I could testify in court, you know, I could stand up in court and tell them this infallible witness. But, and here's the big but always, uh, it was too sacred to tell you, you know, mere peasants. Yes. And I was just like, are you freaking kidding me? The whole point of being a witness of God as a prophet or a witness of a prophet is you tell people, show us the evidence. What is your spiritual experience? You're a witness. We're a church full of witnesses and testifiers and testimony. But over and over again, we and th this is something the general authorities have done for generations, is they dangle this idea that, oh, yes, I actually had a chat with Jesus face to face last Thursday in the corridors of the temple. Um, and he told me amazing things. But it's far too, you know, personal and sacred for me to tell you Jesus's flock. But I'm still the prophet. And my job is to tell you what Jesus wants you to know. But I'm not going to because it's all about me. And they just can't see how ludicrous this is. So our jaw just kind of drops. It's like, they're still doing this. Really? Are you kidding? And and that was kind of the bulk of the talk. You know, it's a lot the usual, oh, aren't we lucky to have President Nelson? He's so great. And dawn of a new era. The restoration continues. Um, and we're a bit jaded about this. You know, we our experience of the church in Britain and internationally as members is very different to people who, who live in Utah. Um, we very rarely see or interact with general authorities. 
Our religion tends to be in a way kind of purer because it's based upon everyone's best impulses and the scriptures and the lesson manuals and not much else. So kind of one could argue true Mormonism as, as it's meant Mormonism as it's meant to be um, without the cultural dreck that has become normal in Utah. Um, it, it, we have a very different experience and And I'm very grateful for that. You know, I was able to kind of grow up much more with Mormon as it should be rather than what actually goes on in in the the completely different power dynamics and stuff within the Mormon heartlands in Utah and Idaho and so on. Um, But the disadvantage is our members are quite naive. They've been taught a very simple version of the church and its history and the simple narrative. Um, And when we discover and get faith or trust crisis over how much of that was inaccurate or how much we were lied to, our our experience is often that either sort of true believing members, the TBMs, or from people who are dissidents even, they're like, oh, but I knew about all this. I knew Joseph Smith was polygamous when I was three. What's wrong with you? And we knew all this stuff and seer stones. And A, they're probably lying because there was nothing in the mainstream curriculum about any of that. But B, they've they've grown up around people who were the polygamous pioneer families. Their ancestors did all the crazy stuff. So they know about it from their family history. It's just they drink it in with the water there. They know the weirdness. They go to church with these general authorities. They know their weaknesses and, and they know how power works. They know about the nepotism that happens um, and how certain types of people get promoted to high office and so on. That's just, they see all that and they know it. But when you talk about that here, people are like, you evil Satanist. <laughs> Why are you, where's this apostate stuff coming from? What have you been reading? They're not like that. They're all like sort of, they're like Santa Claus. We love them. They're pure sort of grandfather figures. They'd never do that sort of thing. Um, so we we have... an advantage of being able to live the religion much more as it should be in my view you know and kind of ideally and they do a very good job on the whole but a disadvantage of ignorance of not knowing how also messed up and corrupt our history has been and what the leaders have really got up to or still do because we're very disconnected from it um and i think it's interesting when when the gospel topics essays came out um I just in a few of the discussions online in the blog and Ackle, people were mentioning what an existential shock this is for non-English speaking members of the church, because at least if you're an English speaker, you had some chance of accessing the, the apologist materials, the debates, the books about difficult church history. But very little of that was being translated into Spanish, for example. So when Latin America was presented with or discovered rather because they didn't really want to present them, the content of the gospel topics essays, it was a bombshell for them. And I've heard very little about that since. I'd be really interested to know more. Although we did have a Mexican, um, I think, yeah, Mexican missionary serving our ward uh, a couple of years ago. And he was, I was having a chat with him about kind of what he'd been taught growing up. And he knew nothing. He he was just completely ignorant of any of the controversies. And his testimony was very simple and folksy and, you know, and and it was just a real classic case of how the reality of the international church is a, a very, very different experience depending how far away you are 
from Salt Lake geographically. Um, and those tensions are really starting to play out now as, as internationally we are losing members in huge numbers. Yeah. How are things in England with the membership numbers? Um, bad. So my, and this is where my sort of my rage and my passion and my commitment to trying to sort it out comes from. The sort of in a nutshell, the church grew like Topsy in Britain in the early 1800s when all the apostles came here and did amazing missionary things and converted thousands. But as soon as they went public about polygamy, everything crashed. You know, immediately this sort of convert machine from Britain um, ended. And we had some really highly motivated, um, mostly dishonest, but very active anti-Mormon campaigners were touring the country. Um, uh, some quite amazing characters, actually, um, just campaigning against Mormonism. So the church here was kind of erased or, bro or most members until the early 1900s would emigrate to America. Um, so my parents' generation, my grandparents' generation had to pretty much rebuild from scratch. And there, there was this real hunger from the British mission presidents to rebuild the glory days, to kind of recreate what had happened in the 1800s. They'd grown up with these stories of their ancestors coming to Britain and converting thousands. And this morphed very quickly in, in the, the 1960s into the baseball baptisms horror debacle whatever you want to call it, where they were just putting the missionaries under incredible pressure to baptize people, whoever, however, to get numbers and make themselves look good in Salt Lake, um, that they started to just do very corrupt things, you know, creating baseball teams, baptizing the kids as if it was membership of a club. And our ward list just filled up and filled up with more and more people who didn't even know they were Mormon or had very tenuous experience or connections. And so our experience, my experience growing up in the 1970s and 80s was we're carrying around this burden that had been left us of huge ward lists, very small percentages active, this hyper-vigilant, hyper, we must minister everyone uh, sort of mindset in the church that meant we spent so much time chasing these this dead wood. These people are just not interested and never really identified as Mormons. And while we were devoting all our energy to keeping track of them, we kept our eye off the ball of the needs of the actual active members and they filtered away. So we had a gradual painful period of growth, steady growth. Our little branches turned into wards by the 1980s. And I was a teenager by then, was able to ride that wave of great youth programs, very fun youth conventions, come as you are, you know, just as long as you're not naked, we'll have you bring your non-member friends. Well, being Mormon is fun. We had the best social life. All of our friends were just, you know, we have quite a strong drinking culture in this country. Our friends were just giving themselves hangover after unwanted pregnancy, after hangover, getting drunk every night. And we were going to amazing dances, having a blast, stone cold sober, waking up without a headache. It was amazing. And we'd stop being racist, which was really cool as well. Um, so we kind of rode this wave of hope and growth and loads of us went on missions for the first time. Um, and then the kind of the over time in the 90s, the kind of pharisaical fight back against this progress began. 
And one by one, all the components of what had made us attractive and fun were killed off. And that's got hyper intense under the current first presidency. So where we already started with a lot of technical members of the church, but not active from the baseball baptisms era, um, someone leaked a few weeks ago, the, the super secret, I mean, I never thought I'd see these data on active membership rates by stake for the UK and Ireland. And what they show is we are down to 15% of our entire membership active in Britain. And that's probably about the same for the whole of Europe, if not worse than. Um, our stakes usually think it's around 22% because they do, you can work out the stats for your own stake because you know who's on your lists and who attends every Sunday. You know, the state clerks get that data before they send it off to Salt Lake. But what they don't factor in is the address unknown files. There are these huge files that they have of people where we don't know where they live anymore. And eventually ward clerks shuffle them off into the address unknown file. And there are, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in those files. So when they calculate the data for the nation, that gets factored in. So in... We had this sort of tragicomic scenario that 10 years ago in 2010, the Europe Area Presidency challenged Europe to double sacrament attendance in 10 years. And that just seemed like such an easy win. Like you've got a whole decade to just bring one other person or reactivate them. You know, it seemed like a very tame sort of prophecy. Um, and what actually happened during that time is our active membership crashed. So this data has revealed that only four stakes in our whole country grew with active attending membership, and that was only by very small numbers. Everyone else, it fell. The worst is um, Birmingham stake, which has dropped its active sacrament attendance by 40% in the last 10 years. I grew up in Maidstone stake, and I now live next door in Canterbury stake. These are both in Kent. Uh, Mainstone Stake has dropped by 25% in the last 10 years and Canterbury Stake by 22%. And of course, we've added to that, we are losing our young people. We're, you know, the when Mormon Leaks leaked those videos of the apostles receiving their data briefings that were given in, I think it was 2008 originally, you know, they were leaked several years afterwards. So in 2008, the data they were being told was, that within the United States, 70% of all LDS young people stop attending by the, by the time they're 30. And that internationally, the average is 80%. And that's absolutely what we're seeing. If anything, it's worse now. So this, this for me is tragic, but also potentially a catalyst for change. Because if they wake up to these stats... Our local leaders, need to, they're staring into the abyss. Our church will cease to exist as a functional entity in the whole of Europe within 15 or 20 years at the current rate of decline. And you add to that, you know, falling missionary numbers. It's highly unlikely my ward will have missionaries again because there just aren't enough. And they recently shut down our whole mission. Uh, the England, London, South mission closed and they kind of amalgamated it with the neighboring missions. Um, and it's not just happening here, it's happening in America too. The mission I served in, the Florida-Tallahassee mission, has been shut down. 
the two branches I served in, my second area is one and a half years. Um, I did the full two years. Um, they've disappeared as far as I can tell. Um, so we're experiencing this intense, relentless decline of membership. And particularly now I'm middle-aged, most of our kids have gone. What was it all for? And I'm looking at these empty shells and I'm looking and it, it just makes me so angry and it, it really upsets me that I'm, I'm going back towards I've worked with and served in and seen grow from tiny branches up to quite thriving wards with, you know, over a hundred attending on a Sunday and they're back to where they were in the seventies. And it's the same people, this amazing generation of diehards from the sixties and seventies, nearly all of them are still active. And I, I chat to them and I have these in, in conversation. How are you? You know, we've got years of history together. I've known these people since I was born. And they're like, yeah, we're great. How are your children? Oh, they're doing so well. They've married well. Their children are incredible. They're doing really well in their jobs. They don't come to church anymore. They don't come to church anymore. Do they come to church? No, they're not coming to church anymore. And I'm watching them and it's like we've gone back 30 years. It's back to the future. Here they are again with congregations of 50 or 60. The, the same old and tired people now are working hard to support the one or two potential investigators who come to visit and they're amazing human beings, they're ministers, they're just the salt of the earth. But they, the whole promise they were given by the sort of McConkie Mormonism system that by now, after working so hard and doing everything right, they should be looking at their children and their grandchildren, all being temple married by now, raising them a posterity in the church that they will take with them to the celestial kingdom. And that whole thing has been taken away. And I'm like, why? Who's responsible for this? And it's not us. <laughs> These people have worked their butts off. These are like Jesus walking the earth people. It's not that they did anything wrong. And then it's like, well, who did this to us? What is the root cause of this? And you have to turn and look, do critical analysis of the leadership. And I want and to talk kind to you of where we're at. Yeah. Yes, and I want to talk to you about that. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's 2008 or so when yeah. this meeting happened on the video that was leaked some years yes. later. Yeah. It's been over yeah. 10 years. I know. And this was the apostles mm -hmm. all gathered together in mm -hmm. one room receiving mm -hmm. a report from other general authorities. Mm -hmm. And they're telling them these dramatic and alarming statistics mm -hmm. about youth leaving the church. Now, that's the most important group that mm -hmm. any organization has is Absolutely. the youth. Yeah. And they're saying that we are, le we are losing 70% of youth in the United States before they reach the age of 30. Mm -hmm. So what I have seen happen is I have seen attempts by church leadership to address this issue. Mm. And obviously all of them have failed, but mm. one of them was lowering the mission age. Yep. Another was instituting a program to try and keep missionaries who have returned from their mission in the church. Yep. One of, of my, one of my buddies I grew up with was running a sort of a program like that based at the London temple because they, they recognize this as a big problem. Yeah. And my, interestingly, my mum was, um, one of the church's therapists, you know, counselors on their books for doing relationship and other counseling. And 
there are so many young people coming back from their missions psychologically damaged, you know, traumatized by the experience, um, that they, a few couple of years ago, they just issued a blanket thing to all the bishops. Your returning missionaries can have six sessions of counseling paid for the church if they need it. Mm. I mean, how messed up is that? But yes, carry on. Yeah. I was not aware of that. Yeah. Because they, have- they, they, yeah, they, they, it's, people are just coming back damaged. And it may be in part that they're going a bit younger. Although interesting, the bit younger thing is obviously it's a big change for women. I went on my mission at 18 uh, because in Britain um, it's very hard to start university and then drop out for two years and then carry on. Um, pretty much throughout the mission age for young men in Britain has been 18. Um, and particularly when, when I was that age, you know, you'd finish your high school, go on your mission and then start university. There wasn't any of this hanging around for a year, earning your money or whatever. And um, so, yeah, I'd only been 18 about two months when I went on my mission. Um, still had the best accent though. <laughs> <laughs> what, what years were you on your mission? So I served in the Florida Tallahassee mission from 89 to 91. So really interesting time. I, I just caught the old version of the temple endowment and they, they switched it up while I was serving. Um, so I, I got in there just in time for the full Masonic experience. Um, and it was, it was such a time of hope. And I, I loved it because when I went to Alabama, they were kind of where the church in Britain had been 10 years earlier in the early 80s. So it's a mixture of wards and struggling branches. And I was like, yeah, I get this. I know these people and where they're at. This is what I've just lived through. And, you know, it's really exciting to help them sort of pioneer things and hang in there and, and build. And... It was such a time of hope. I mean, the church stopped being institutionally racist the year before I was baptized as a, an, an eight-year-old. Um, and so we were kind of literally this first generation coming out of that dark night of whatever the heck that was like. Um, and, and we were multiracial. We had black friends and members in our stake, um, even though Kent is quite a white area. Um, ironically, the the little village I grew up in, the only mixed race person in the whole town was um, a less active Mormon. Um, but it, it, so that was amazing to go from that to Alabama apartheid. It was an incredible experience in education in America's racial difficulties. And uh, a lot of our struggle was overcoming that and trying to make pe- black people welcome in the white church. Um, so that was just awesome yeah so it's a really exciting hopeful positive game-changing time it was about reaching out to the world being inclusive we've got the answers the christian churches particularly in britain were in full collapse at that point and the the idea in our heads was well they're going to walk out of their churches and into ours because we've got the truth we've got the stuff they've been missing we've got the doctrines that can answer their questions that mainstream christianity hasn't a clue about um, and that, and I went to the Bible belts, you know, <laughs> like come to me, Christians, come and be Mormons. Um, <laughs> we'll sort out your, your messed up evangelical thing you've got going on. And, uh, and there was a bit of that, but to then sort of 20 years later, suddenly find that we are losing our young people and declining at exactly the same rate as the bog standard Baptist church down the road even though we've got all these extras, they don't have the Book of Mormon. 
they don't have the doctrine and covenants in our paradigm. They don't have the priesthood. They don't even have the gift of the Holy Ghost. They don't have CTR rings. They don't have all these youth programs. They don't send most of their kids on missions for two years. So we have all these extras, like these incredible, amazing things that we do. Uh, our welfare program, just how we minister to each other, absolutely kicks butt compared to what you know, generic Christian congregations manage in most of Britain anyway. Yet, what is it we are doing to ourselves that means our rate of attrition and loss is exactly the same as theirs? What are we doing to under, undermine every single point advantage that we should have for retaining our young people particularly? You know, it's, and people, I just want to go mad when people say, oh, well, it's the world, everything's going a bit secular. And, you know, it's just to be expected that we'll, we'll be losing our young people too. And it's like, how, are you a Mormon? What's going on in your head? Why, have, why is that even a thing for you? Because our whole entire religion is based on the idea that we're meant to grow and fill the world, while they, of course, decline under the weight of their own inadequacies. So that, that sort of realisation has been a real game changer for me. Um, and got me quite militant. It's like, other people aren't doing this stuff to us. We're doing it to ourselves. What are we doing to our own kids that we we love them and nurture them and invest in them and give them so much? And I was a product of that. What then do we do to them, particularly as teenagers, that then just throws them in the bin, even though we keep talking about how precious they are and they're the future? It, it's why there isn't just far more so soul searching about this is a real testament to how much people are brainwashed really in conditions to look elsewhere to blame the world so it's all it's just the last days everything's going to go pants so it's to be expected and it big and i'm just like why are you so powerless why are you so passive about this why are you just letting it happen this is your own children and uh, it just makes me mad um, well, to follow yeah. up on that thought, Peter, go on. Yeah, I, I see the church uh, doing everything that they mm -hmm. can do, and by that I think I mean everything that they can think of. Yes, to do, and it has to do with these programs we've talked about. I yeah. think I did an episode yeah. on that a while back. Mm -hmm. but all these different things that they have been doing, mm -hmm. which ultimately are not making things better, and in mm -hmm. fact, things are getting worse in spite of all mm -hmm. the programs. And this is this is the best they have. This is everything mm -hmm. they can do, and now mm -hmm. we finally are left to a new series of videos at Fair Mormon oh, that are Lord. supposed to appeal. And I don't want to get off on that as a tangent. I want to focus mm. on you. But we, we, we have a phrase in Britain, everything's gone tits up. <laughs> have you heard that? Uh, no. Well, yes, I have. But you said something yeah. earlier about everything's gone pants. Did you say yes, pants? pants? What does that mean? Yeah, absolute pants. Uh, pants for us is underwear, not trousers. Mm. Your your bottom underwear. It's just pants. It's like a generic, oh, it's rubbish. But if things go tits up, it means you've just dropped dead on your back. So your tits are pointing at the sky. Um, so if everything's gone tits up, it's a complete disaster and it's just been killed. Well, how so ironic that the acronym for this show is... ironic. This is the show. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, Fair Mormon has gone tits up. I just, I'm, I can't believe it. Well, I can. It was inevitable, but it's still, you sometimes get some, some a friend of mine um, uh, in a Facebook comment said something about the decline of the church. He said, this is like the Soviet Union. Everyone could see that the system was broken, 
and that there were fundamental problems. But the actual inevitable outcome of that, the collapse of the Soviet Union under its own the weight of its own dysfunctions, still came as a surprise to everyone. And I really think that's what's happening in the church. There are so many obvious problems, and the general authorities know what they are. But for the collapse to actually be happening now has still come as a shock, and people are still in shock, and they're too shocked to kind of stop and think, well, why? And I'm just trying to get ahead of the curve a bit because loads of people have, you know, thousands of thoughtful Latter-day Saints from every kind of background have realized the problems and most of them have left after usually trying for a few years to fix it and then just giving up because they were banging their head against the wall. Um, yeah, sorry, I've gone off on one. Carry on. Tits. Yeah, I'm uh, Mormon. No, <laughs> Back just to the tits. <laughs> yeah, just just to finish that thought. You see, you're way ahead yeah. of me, and I just yeah. want to make sure it's Sorry. very clear. That's okay. Yeah, that um, that the idea being that none of these programs have worked, and no. now we're reduced to the spectacle a fair Mormon with tithing money funneled to them through yes. various means, producing yeah. a series of videos which yeah. are edgy, controversial to many, mm. offensive. But the mm. design of them is that these are the ones. These are the mm. videos. This is the message that's going to reach the youth and mm. keep them from abandoning ship. Yeah. Just utter stupidity. And and particularly because, I mean, and ultimately the base root cause of this problem is that the leaders of the general authorities of our church are chosen specifically because they don't have imagination. They have no creative imagination. They they have proven themselves to be compliant, subservient, 100% um reliable under any and loyal to the system therefore they get trusted with power and Hugh Nibley talked about this and prophesied it in his leaders versus managers talk at Brigham Young University um, which uh, just predicted this happening you know the takeover of the managers rather than the leaders um, so they're sitting on a hundred billion dollars and this is what enrages me is the church is dying you know, we're at the forefront of it here out in the mission fields. You know, my ward is down to less than 50. Mine will be the first to go in our stake over the next few years. You know, I want it to survive, but the the, the process is underway, you know. Um, and they, like, you could pay people to come up with better stuff than this. You could pay, I'll do it. I'll do it. I won't even want the hundred billion. Give give me a grand. I'll give you a complete program to fix the church. And if you actually asked most local members, they'd be able to tell them as well what the problems are and what could be done about it. You know, it's, it shouldn't be rocket science, but it is to them because they somehow they haven't got the sense of responsibility or the ideas themselves. So they've delegated it all to other people. And we now seem to be a church run by this um, weird Byzantine bureaucracy where they have committees for everything with very little general authority oversight. You know, that committee does the racist manual. This committee sends money to farms to do the difficult apologetic arguments because we definitely don't want to put our apostles in front of a journalist again or, or into an actual debate because they'll lose, um, as proven by recent experiences with the BBC or whatever. And they... They they could just and they delegate, in a sense, innovating ideas to grassroots members, which is an opportunity to encourage change. If something works in a local ward, it will be in the training video for the whole church the next year because they're always after the quick fix. Um, but they're not 
we've we stopped having apostles who actually take responsibility who engage with the ideas and the real problems and and that is the fundamental reason they have then entrusted the job to amateurs and who who they don't understand and what makes me livid is their delusion that those tits films are in any way going to be useful or appealing to the young i'm a teacher i teach teenage boys at secondary school you know here what we call high school your high school i know how their minds work and they love toilet humor and they're they're addicts to this short sharp sort of online experience but they're not going to learn anything from those films those films are like what happens when young people grow up fed the fair mormon propaganda which is all about mental gymnastics and you know just ludicrous become ludicrous um and all they're doing is saying exactly the same things their seniors have been saying in their essays and arguments and articles trying to defend the indefensible too much they're just saying it faster with graphics so it's not new they're just saying the old thing but the point is no one cares about what they're talking about they've created all these things about obscure little talking points that apologists obsess about in the CES letter this is not what today's teenagers are leaving the church over this is not what they're interested in and if you just sort of cold came cold to watching those films as an average mormon teenager none of it will make any sense at all they're just kind of talking to their own little bubble of other apologists who know that there, there's this huge controversy and you know about this obscure thing to do with the book of of Olishem or whatever you know they if they think this is the thing that's going to save the young they're out of their freaking minds and the kids aren't stupid this is also what aggravates me with the dumbing down of the church curriculum with come follow me is it's literally now elementary school level learning at school at real school we teach children and young teenagers to critically analyze to question sources to and to explore the motives of the author to cross reference to research online to fact check they can do all of that that's their normal and to then expect them not to do that and to just be passive recipients of whatever gets into the manual that isn't scrutinized really clearly by the first presidency at all and it's just someone in an office you know some office drone or a committee producing some words um they're just completely barking up the wrong tree and and what i thought was hysterical was the the guy who runs fair mormon in saying we're behind this 100% we you know we approve this message you know we we have authorized what they're saying in these these tits films about the cs letter and so on is he then actually did some data stuff he talked about oh we're so excited because young people are responding to this but then he trotted off numbers and it was something like 10% of people are under 30 <laughs> so like even even the whatever made up statistics he was offering were tiny like a, only a microscopic percentage of the people watching these films as far as he knew were even their target demographic and he was hailing this as the great victory to reach the young just like really you know so they and and this is just it's just a microcosm of what's going on in so many aspects of how the church runs as an organization and how incompetent amateurs ended up being given 
money and power and they don't hire people if you've got a hundred billion dollars save the church with it you know i don't, don't get me started on the presiding bishopric gaslighting justifying it which included we're saving it for a disaster like the great depression and it's like well the great depression was when everyone woke up and their hundreds of billions of dollars in stocks and shares were now worthless <laughs> so I just, I was like, that was one of the bishopric, presiding bishopric councillors said that. In the, and you can read it in these interviews with the Church News and Deseret News. It's like, you know, we're ready for that. And we've, we've given a sum of money that's larger than the gross national product of most of the nation states of the earth. There are only 40 countries that have a G, gross national product bigger than $100 billion in stocks and shares to a man who doesn't even know what the Great Depression was and what that meant for stocks and shares. And you just like, and then I'm like, you know, a, a dead gerbil could do less harm than these people. If we literally had a dead gerbil leading our church, they would make fewer mistakes. And so it's about scale and spectrum. It's like, we can do better than this. And I get, and the money thing just, I, my last ward, Welling Ward, is this incredible ward. Technically, it's 150 years old. Brigham Young, as a missionary, came and taught in Dartford, which is in their ward area. So you've got this 150-year-old ward, amazing outskirts of London, multicultural, about 15 different nationalities. Um, when I was there and ward mission leader, we had six missionaries and they were a machine and they were amazing. And we just couldn't keep up with the, the convert baptisms. At one point, we were the highest baptizing ward in Europe. Meeting in a school and then meeting in another school and then meeting in an office building and now back in a school. They have to like set everything up every Sunday from their cupboards to run church. And they've been there 150 years and the reason they don't have a chapel is over and over again, the church won't bid high enough or realistically to buy land to build on. But the church will build another temple in a little town of 13,000 people in Utah and pay whatever it costs to do that. And the message always to them was, well, you're not paying enough tithing or you're clearly not faithful enough yet. Or it's always us. It's always our fault. We're not doing enough. And and that to then find out they're sitting on a hundred billion dollars, a microscopic crumb of which would build Welling Water Palace, and they're not spending it on anything while the church literally dies. You could pay people to write the most amazing scriptural curriculum. You could research the heck out of it being effective. You could pay the world's greatest experts on earth with that kind of money, with a tiny fraction of that kind of money. To, to run a mission program that will actually work. You could pay people to do every single thing to have the ideas. If you're going to promote people with no imagination whatsoever to be the apostles and 17 presiding bishopric of our church, at least hire some people with ideas. And they haven't. And they're just building up the money. And I, 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 it's probably realistic to say that for every member of the church who goes inactive now, they make another million dollars on their investments. And it's everything Jesus taught not to do. Don't put your trust in the arm of flesh. Money is not your salvation. And in this interview with the presiding bishopric, after the whistleblower revealed how much money they're sitting on, 
they literally said the safety and security of the mission of our church is in this money, is in these stocks and shares. We will keep the mission program going. Of course, that was a massive lie. What they actually did when things got scary financially last time around was they closed most of the missionary training centers. And this year, during COVID, when everyone's financially strapped and the presiding bishopric are, are appearing on, on YouTube and in the newspapers saying this money is to help keep the programs of the church going, they raised the cost for every missionary to, from $400 a month to $500 a month. They raised it by 25% to cover rising expenses, but they wouldn't touch the billion, hundred of billion dollars that could buy every missionary a personal chauffeur Rolls Royce and a penthouse suite in whatever country they're living in at a hotel. So they just lie. They lie and lie and they gaslight and they gaslight. And this is why people are leaving. You just can't keep being this incompetent and expect things to go well. I know I've gone off on one there, but this is the thing. It's all so interrelated. It's all, you know, this thing is connected to that thing, connected to that thing. Well, let me bring this around here for a second. Yeah. You have recently posted Mm. on YouTube. It's also on your Facebook page. Yeah. I haven't posted on YouTube, YouTube, sorry, but I've I've done an audio on my Facebook page. Yes, go on. Please get it on YouTube, okay? (laughs) Because here's the deal. It's a three-part... podcast called Christians versus Pharisees, which is why the title of this episode is Christians versus Pharisees in homage to your work there. (laughs) Why? Thank you. Well, I listened to part one Mm. last night and this morning on the drive in. You're very brave. They're long. (laughs) Well, the first one certainly is. It's over two hours. It's about two two and a half hours, two hours and 40 minutes. Mm. It's absolutely brilliant. Thank you. And I'm saying that not because you're a guest on this show. Mm but because it is positively brilliant what you do and how you articulate the issues that are going on in the church right now that are Mm -hmm. leading to the problems it is experiencing. Mm -hmm. And then I also listened to part two this morning, which is only 40 Mm -hmm. minutes long, Mm -hmm. but you play clips from the general authorities, particularly focusing in on Mm -hmm. President Nelson and President Oaks. Mm -hmm who are the two main offenders, I think, as far as what you're talking about, because you had just mentioned mm. gaslighting and lying. Yeah. yeah. And I have not listened yet to part three, but I'm anxiously mm. looking forward to doing that. And I do mm. want to put in a plug right now to my listeners to go to your Facebook page, Peter Bleakley, B-L-E-A-K as in Bleak House, Bleakley, <laughs> L-E-Y, yep. correct? Yep. Yes. <laughs> And listen to these. These are Mm. absolutely amazing. Of course, the best part was in the middle of part two where you gave a a shout out to Radio Free Mormon. Of course. I I was (laughs) delighted to be included (laughs) in that Uh, because, of course, the definition of someone who's brilliant is somebody who agrees with me, right? Exactly. I feel the same. For all of us, that's, that's a common human condition, right? It's, it's, the, it's the way to know. It's the, the prime determining factor. <laughs> Just like somebody with a good sense of humor is the person who laughs at my jokes. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Which I do. <laughs> uh, well, the first part was, was yeah. very nicely. I'll try and stop using brilliant. I don't want to overuse it. <laughs> um, but it was structured around the idea that the, mm. of the doctrinal infallibility Mm. of the prophets and apostles of the church Mm. and further structured around the three core texts 
that are used in the LDS church in order to support that idea. The first one being Doctrine yeah. and Covenants, section one, verse 38. The second yeah. one being uh, Wilfred Woodruff from 1890 and the manifesto mm-hmm. when he said that the mm-hmm. prophet of the church will never lead, or the president will never lead the church astray. It's not in God's program. Yeah. And the third being the story, you say Heber J. Mm-hmm. Grant. I thought you were going to say Marion G. Romney because I'm not yeah. sure we have this from oh, Heber like, J. Grant. Yeah. It's just, it's just through. I, I kind of, I tracked it back. It gets repeated a lot. It's appeared several times in manuals and it's appeared in talks. So you've got Marion G. Romney giving a general conference talk in which he quotes Heber J. Grant talking about, you know, it's, so it's kind of a, a, a bit of a layer cake there, but yes. Yes. It's um, always Marion G. Romney <laughs> saying yeah. what Heber J. Grant told Marion G. Romney when Heber J. Grant yeah. was the president and Marion G. Romney, a lowly bishop before Mary yeah. G. Romney came out an apostle and a member of the first presidency. But yeah. we don't have two hours and 40 minutes, even for you to say everything that you have to say in part one. Yeah. And I don't want you to do that. I want to direct my, my yeah. listeners there to hear it because really it is, it's, it's wonderful the way you do it. Can you Thank just you. give us a brief mm-hmm. thumbnail of that in a few minutes and mm-hmm. hit the main points? And then, you know, we'll go through part two and then ultimately into part three as well because part three is really the uh well it's interesting to me because i haven't heard it yet and i'm anticipating Mm. hearing it yet where Mm. you not only talk about the problems that uh the church experiences because the leaders continually lie and gaslight Mm. by the way the thing that's great about it is you make these outrageous claims but then you go to play the tape yeah and there it is there it is that's it yeah. I mean, that's been that's been the real game changer for me. And it's they've got worse in recent years. It's part of this sort of Pharisee takeover, this management takeover rather than leaders. Like Bruce Armour Conkey and Boy K. Papka, you know, they could be real monsters, but they cared and they understood that it mattered what they were saying. And they were very careful about how they worded things in their talks. These guys are just like, they just say it. They lay it all out. You don't have to go digging. All you have to do is actually pay attention to what they're actually saying in general conference, in the face-to-face broadcasts, and in their talks at devotionals at the Brigham Young Universities that then get broadcast to the youth. And they're just saying it. And, and in a nutshell, they flipped from the Christian Mormonism gospel to Lucifer's plan of salvation, which is all command and control, unconditional obedience. So they, they're referring to these three um, sort of sources. And, and really, the, the big epiphany for me, and, and there are going to be lots more episodes, it's not just the three, sorry. Um, the bit, you know, there's so much more to get to, like um, Henry B. Eyring Jr.'s talk at BYU-Idaho, just like saying, you can't judge anything to do with the church, just focus on your sins and repent, and then you'll know it's all true, and stuff like that. They're just like, it's flabbergasting. But... Um, but the, the, it's so, at first I was like, we can't fix this. You know, I'm a fixer. The Bleakley family have been doing Mormonism for four generations now. And our attitude has tended to be, it's our responsibility to make it better. You know, we're not passive participants. Mm-hmm. We, we, we love this religion. We're passionate about it. It should be congregant with intelligence, with learning. There's, you know, the, the proper Mormonism, as I would say it. Um, and if there's a problem, we fix it. We will do stuff to make it better because that's our job. We're all in this together. You know, we're all part of the ministry. And the and I was just getting so bogged down with like a list of like 60 really fundamental things that need fixing. Bishop interviews that are alienating the kids. 
um, the mission program being completely dysfunctional and on and on and on. And I was like, you can't, you can't do this. The list is too long. It's too broken. We can't do this. And then the real epiphany, which on reflection has been kind of, I've been realizing for a long time anyway, was, ah, there is a really simple way to frame all this. It's a civil war. It's the war in heaven. It's still going on. And it's not the church versus the world. It's within the church. You have Jesus's plan of salvation, which is all through risk, through allowing people to think and learn for themselves and take those risks to innovate creatively, to, to live and experience and learn and reflect and do better tomorrow. And then there's Lucifer's plan of salvation, the totalitarian lie that all police states offer. If you give us your freedom, we'll give you safety and predictable outcomes. So you don't think for yourself, just obey, do as you're told, we'll tell you what to think. You don't need to think, you don't need to question, we're infallible and perfect, you can totally trust us and stay on the covenant path. And those two ideologies, those two completely different religions with all the other details of what Jesus criticized the Pharisees for, have both been taught in Mormonism all along. And they are complete opposites. And you can find quotes from general authorities that literally contradict each other. I started a list and I got to about 100 already, you know, I'll post that at some point. Um, and I'm like, oh, hang on a minute. This is what the thing is. Oh, and all the scriptures make sense now. Jesus's whole ministry was primarily a war with the Pharisees within his own religion. He wasn't there criticizing the Romans. He was about, he's going after their jugular. He's like, you hypocrites, you've turned our religion into all about rules and control and distancing yourself from people and not having compassion for the broken and the outcast because of your system and what you consider to be holy. Jesus was fighting this war. And we've taught both religions in our church. And when you then look at everything, every single thing through the paradigm of, is this Christian or is this Pharisee? Suddenly it all simplifies because that's a really easy answer to, question to answer about everything. It's like the, what would Jesus do? That, that very quickly separates the wheat from the chaff. And that was so encouraging to me to as someone who wants to stay as someone who's doing this experiment, can we know everything that is dysfunctional about the church? Be completely honest about it. Call it what it is. If they're lying, they're lying. Like use the word. And they do a lot of it. Just they're liars. And this is a problem. We can't just ignore it or pretend there's some higher purpose going on. Um, and that sort of thing then you can deal with it. Then you can identify and kind of trace back what's the root cause, what are the systematic causes of these problems. So what we're getting now is almost every more reasonable Mormon you talk to will say, well, of course, prophets got things wrong and made mistakes because they're human, they're fallible, they'll make mistakes. But then at the same time, you've got actual prophets quoting these references you've given still this year in their talks, the church will never, the leaders of the church will never lead you astray. They, you can't judge them. And there's this quote from George Q. Cannon that Elder Eyring used. Elder Eyring gave a talk, um, The Power of Sustaining Faith. And he said, I want George Q. Cannon's words to be my own. Um, you know, nobody can judge a leader of the church. It's only God's job to judge them. And then he described how it is now a sin 
to speak or even think of our leaders having human weaknesses, which is insane. And when he said this, I was like, did anyone else just hear what he just actually taught there? You know, like I've studied the rise of the European dictatorships in history for years. This is what it is. This is what it looks like, you know, when the Nazis take over. They just like, you're not allowed to think anymore, do as you're told, authoritarianism, you're wrong to question us. And he basically gave carte blanche for unrighteous dominion by every leader in the church, because you're betraying God if you don't just do as you're told and believe whatever they're telling you. It's like so many times, Peter, my impression is that they they will say things like this example that you've given, but they seem unable to see the obvious conclusion yeah. to be drawn from that, what you're saying is unrighteous mm. dominion. Yes. Yeah. And and President Irene has also been big on all callings come from God and you accept whatever calling is given yeah. because it is given to you from God. Mm. Therefore, your bishop, whoever is above you in the system, has mm. been called of God. Whatever they're doing is what God wants to have done. And therefore, you must submit to it regardless of what those demands are. Mm. And he said, and if you don't do this, terrible, you know, tragedies will occur for you and your loved ones beyond your ability to imagine. And I sort of have fun with that in episode three. Um, Cause it's like, I'm, I'm an artist, Henry B. Eyring. I can imagine some crazy stuff, man. You know, like, so you're telling me that if I, I dare to speak or even think of any of my leaders having few human weakness and therefore possibly making a mistake about anything at all, um, you know, space dragons are going to come and burn down all the cities of the earth and nuclear weapons will evaporate the oceans because I can imagine that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and he, they just use this rhetoric that is nonsense. And I get accused of exaggeration. <laughs> Like, seriously. But people lap this stuff up in general conference. So it's like, oh, Peter, you exaggerate. They're not that bad. Oh, you and your flowery language. And I'm like, he just told us that if we even acknowledge that the secretary of the Relief Society presidency might have human weaknesses, things beyond our wildest imagination, calamities are going to occur to us onto the fourth generation. And, and I'm the one who's exaggerating, you know. And it's just, and it all boils down to that they, the one thing, the current leadership do not want to admit that they can be fallible. And they will play it both ways. They will, they will throw previous leaders under the bus. I mean, Nelson's inaugural throwing Hinckley and Monson's I'm a Mormon campaign very specifically under the bus as a victory for Satan. Oh, they're quite happy to stab the back, you know, stick the knife in for the the most recent dead prophet. But we all have this mental, and, you know, people were like, oh, yeah, well, Joseph Smith did some crazy stuff, but that was back then, this is now. But if you say, well, maybe the current living prophet might be getting something wrong. Oh, no, that can't possibly, you know, it's completely out of bounds. You can't question them now. You have to kind of repudiate them later. <laughs> it's almost it's, like we don't allow ourselves to think the yeah. obvious thought that all yeah. past prophets were living prophets at yes, one point. Exactly. And you'd be punished for not believing what they did. And, you and the class- oh, by the way, and that yeah. the living prophet yeah. will also be a past prophet at some point. Yes, yes. 
And it becomes this Hunger Games thing, like they just bide their time until they get the throne and then they get to do their plan. And President Nelson has been so overt about this. I've never seen it in any of the previous ones that he's been seen. He gave a talk in 1991 or whenever about how the church's name should be the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We shouldn't be saying Mormon. The next conference in October, President Hinckley graciously acknowledged that, but said, well, actually, we're going to go with it for these sensible reasons. And the I'm a Mormon campaign began. And we all supported that. And my bishop was on his, he was on posters all over our, our train stations in London. And then we made films and just did that for years. And it was a really kind of positive, hopeful way of engaging with the world. And we obeyed our living prophet. We did what we were told. We sustained them, which they keep telling us to do, with enthusiasm. And then present, and this just really broke my sort of any kind of remaining attachment to these people. He got up in general conference, and instead of doing the same thing Hinckley said, well, that was cool, now we need to take the next step and framing it nicely, he was just all his 30 years of pent-up frustration and, and hurt at being embarrassed like that by President Hinckley came out and he was out to get everyone. We sinned. We offended Jesus. We showed ingratitude for his atonement by allowing the word Mormon to pass from our lips and not only do that, but promoting the word. And so he was throwing Monson and Hinckley under the bus, but all of us and shaming us. And he said, Jesus is so offended, he has been withholding unprecedented blessings from the church because of this sin you awful, miserable peasants all committed when you ignored me 30 years ago and went a different direction. And now I am the new Messiah. You know, the restoration is going to jumpstart again. I'm going to fix that mess. I'm going to bring Jesus back into our name. So let's stop calling the Mormon Tabernacle Choir the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Let's call it something with Jesus in, like the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. And you just think, are you stupid? And he then did a follow-up talk recently with, you know, the big celebration with the new logo in which he kind of referenced that. And he said, you know, we've done this. We've purged, you know, we sorted out. We brought Christ back. And the Tabernacle, come on, Tabernacle Choir is now called the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square, which is named after a geographical location, nothing to do with Jesus. And here's the reward. He, I don't know if it was a Freudian slip, but he kind of like, We've done it. Now Jesus can open the, the, the heavens. And what are we going to get? A new logo. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and you just like, did you, again, did you just say that, President Nelson? That was it? And then later on, you know, we waved some hankies and there was some long chapter from the, the now defunct gospel principles lesson about the restoration reworked as a proclamation. And you just like, can you even see what you're doing? You, you shamed my, all my people during those years when you think we went off into giving victories to Satan. My, I, my Welling Ward, struggling every week to set up in whatever meeting house we were renting at the time, with ward council involved, everyone there had a job, men and women, struggling in after work to then just try and keep track of a huge ward list mostly filled with dead wood from stupid baseball baptisms and similar approaches by mission presidents since rushing people to the font too quickly. 
Um, how are we going to even learn the names of our new converts, never mind track them? And a lot of them were quite transient people because that's who missionaries baptize now, recent immigrants and people who are struggling who are not going to root themselves in your congregation. And, and these people doing all of that while raising families, testifying of Christ, using the I'm a Mormon campaign to testify of their love of Jesus Christ and their gratitude for the atonement serving, bearing testimony, doing the Christian thing, the Mormon Christian thing to the max. And you, as president of the church, who appointed yourself without a common consent vote of anybody, are getting up in general conference and trying to shame these people for for sustaining their profit, while again declaring that you are infallible, prophets always speak the truth, the church, he will not lead the church astray, which he said when he tried to turn the pox into a, a revelation. It's just, and I'm surrounded by people like, oh, isn't he lovely? What a nice prophet. I love him so much. Let's put his picture on the wall. I'm like, no, he's an abusive bully. He's an arrogant, self-centered, dangerous, abusive bully who is driving your colleagues out of the church with this kind of mindset and all the others doing it with him. And making this a toxic environment for people who actually listen to what he's saying. And you think this is going to save the church and a new logo? And and the lies. Just I'll just finish with that one before I finish this little rant. Okay. The, I'm a graphic designer by training. You know, I'm an artist. And he's all about, oh, this new logo shows Jesus Christ more. They already did that. Ezutef Benson changed the logo to make the name of Jesus bigger. In fact, the new logo, you can't even read the words. It's so small compared to the statue of Zeus. And you just, and like literally he claims this was fixing the logo to make Jesus Christ more prominent and it makes it less prominent. It's a failure of a design. As soon as you shrink it down from A4 size, you can't read it. That's a logo failure. (laughs) Mm. And he's proclaiming this as the unprecedented blessings from heaven, from Jesus who got offended because we use the word Mormon, a few years after David Bednar taught that taking offense is an immature spiritual choice. Where's the joined up thinking, you know? It was just such a sort of microcosm of everything that's gone wrong in their thinking. And how, so ultimately we have to somehow detach ourselves from expecting these particular people to be the answer. Um, And they're just products of a system they were never meant to have absolute power with no accountability. The, con- the, the constitution of the church is radical democracy. Every quorum of leadership has equal authority, including state high councils, and nothing can be done without the, the vote of the entire membership. Um, but Brigham Young put the kibosh on that quite early on, so people have kind of forgotten that that's how it was meant to be. But you can read it in our scriptures. Still there. Yeah. By the way... Uh, you say so many wonderful things that spark so many Sorry. ideas and questions <laughs> in my mind, and I don't want to yeah. interrupt you because you no, go are on, interrupt. on a roll. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, so first thing is that um, hmm. the past two now general conferences where hmm. nobody has been present in Salt Lake City, hmm. nobody can be seen by the hmm. leaders of the church because hmm. they're all viewing it remotely, hmm. and yet they still go forward with the vote. Yes. And I think that more than anything else has illustrated to me Mm. that the vote of the members of the church, the common consent 
is absolutely meaningless mm. to the leaders of the church because they will go forward regardless of what the members are voting because they don't know what the members are voting because they can't see the members voting. No. And and this is and this is one of the things I'm picking up in these these podcast things is that there's kind of a little mini story here that it was President Nelson's ascension to power that was the first time I kind of clocked what we should have all have been seeing all along. The Doctrine and Covenants specifically says that no one should hold any calling in the church without a sustaining vote of that church. You know, and when you're the president of the church, that has to be the entire membership being offered that opportunity. And the, the Doctrine and Covenants are crystal clear about that. What they've been doing for generations now, and I'm trying, I've been putting out feelers to some of the LDS historians to find out when this actually began, is the apostles get together in secret in the temple, and this is what happened with President Nelson, They, when a prophet dies. They decide who the new first presidency will be. In this case, they released President Uchtdorf, brought in Dallin Oaks, and made Nelson the president, you know, following the predictable system they've created. They set them apart. They didn't tell anyone for three days. Then they held the press conference that was a debacle in so many ways. You know, it costs people dear to me their testimony, actually, just the way he spoke about women and couldn't even imagine women having a role beyond being mothers in the home. And then there was this parade of the Siamese children, which was weird. Like, one by one, President Nelson's children and grandchildren and their families were paraded like on a catwalk in front of the cameras at the end of this thing. It was like a new Celtic chieftain being sort of enthroned with his dynasty, um, which kind of said a lot. Um, And then it was three months, three months before the membership were offered a sustaining vote opportunity to vote to sustain or oppose their functioning in that position. So for three months, they're just carrying on. We are the first presidency. We'll make these decisions. We're issuing these things. We're, we're it. We, we're authorized now because we authorized ourselves. Um, and then they had the general conference, which they called a solemn assembly, and they gave it all the pomp and circumstance. And here we are now to sustain the leadership. And will the 70 please stand up and vote? And then the women and the children and the El- and the Melchizedek priesthood holders and all of that. And it's like, but they've already done this. This is a fait accompli. This is a complete farce. You, This isn't real. What if we all voted opposed? You know, what if that happens? Have you got any contingency plan for that? Do we undo what they've been doing for the last three months without any authority at all? So just from a purely Mormon paradigm, not even like a sceptical, fringy outsider, is it any wonder these people are not having revelations? Is it any wonder God is not giving them any more scripture? Because they're not even following the scriptures about their own callings. They're not, you know, President Nelson will go on and on about one verse in the Doctrine and Covenants about the name of the church and make our whole thing about realigning everything to suit that obsession of his. But there are lots of scriptures about the common consent constitution of our our religion and how power is meant to be distributed. And he's ignoring them completely. And they have been for generations, it would seem. You know, someone get in touch and tell us when this started. Um, I've got a feeling. I've got a feeling you, that that uh, this probably dates to right around the time of Lorenzo Snow. 
Mm. I, I've had the same question that you have had. I don't know mm. the answer, but as you're asking mm. it again, I heard you ask mm. it on the, on your podcast where I was listening to mm. it this morning. And I thought that's such a good question, but I've got a feeling it has to do with Lorenzo snow or mm. thereabouts because one of the only publicly claimed visitations of the savior after Joseph Smith by any church president dates back to Lorenzo Snow. And it's not even Lorenzo mm-hmm. Snow saying it. It's like his granddaughter or somebody saying it after he's passed away. But the idea was, was that the president of the church before him, Wilfred Woodruff, I believe, had mm-hmm. just passed away. And Lorenzo Snow, uh, up to that point, by the way, historically speaking, quite a period of time had gone by between the death of a president of the church and the reconstitution of the first presidency and the ordaining of a new president. Mm. In, in the interim, it was, it was the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, which would be, I guess, 14 by then, uh, 15 minus the one who had died, who would lead the church. But Jesus appears from the courts on high in the corridors of the Salt Lake Temple to Lorenzo Snow, so the story goes. Mm. And the purpose of this almost unprecedented visitation by Jesus to a president of the church is to tell him one thing, and you know what that one thing is, don't you? The one thing that Jesus tells him is, don't wait so long to reorganize the first presidency. The first presidency needs to be reorganized immediately upon the death of the prior president. So I'm wondering if maybe that is at or around the time. Could well be. A friend of mine reached out to one of the church historians, but the the answer, and I think the way the question was framed, wasn't quite specific enough, so I've asked him to go back. But he was sort of maybe pointing to Brigham Young reorganizing things at winter quarters when in your amazing episode, Coup d'etat, um, Brigham Young sort of concentrated all power with with the apostles. Yeah, so it's fascinating. At some point around there, this this change happened. And I, I talked to a few because I'm, I'm not quiet at church. My poor ward, bless their little hearts. They're very tolerant of me kicking off quite regularly. Um, and I've, I've talked to a few people like, well, you know, then what's the issue here? And they're like, oh, does it really matter? You know, it's God's decision. I'm like, I just, and this is the thing for me, ultimately, they've completely flipped the script on the religion I grew up in. No one cares anymore about lines of authority for priesthood. When was the last time that ever got talked about at church? The, the, the most I could find out about this was, well, there were so many inaccurate ones, they didn't want to keep perpetuating the inaccuracies. But a whole thing when I grew up was we have the authority in a direct line from this ordination to Joseph Smith. This matters more than anything. You don't ever ordain someone without giving them a bit of paper with your line of authority on. And that just doesn't happen anymore. Um, certainly not in our neck of the woods. And it's about, it's kind of losing the sense of what Mormonism is meant to be actually caring about and letting it go as if it doesn't matter, plus this sustaining thing. And because you wouldn't do it, you wouldn't ordain a state president without a vote first. That just wouldn't happen. And I did a bit more rooting around and found that some of the apostles, um, the usual format for apostles is they are presented a new apostle at general conference and then they get ordained the Thursday afterwards or something. And if you look up their profiles in Wikipedia, you can check the dates they got ordained. Um, But there's actually a few random exceptions. So Elder Holland, for example, was ordained as an apostle in in summer between conferences um, and served for months before anyone in general conference voted about it. So they've got this 
some kind of way. I've, I tried to look at the scriptures. Is there a way out? Is there a caveat here? Like, or high councils can kind of, in the absence of a congregation, high councils can authorize priests, you know, and are they considering themselves as the quorum of Q15 to be that high council? But no, I mean, the, the instructions are very clear. If you have a church that can vote, they will vote first. Isn't it um, interesting that they have these exceptions yeah. for some apostles and apparently for yeah. every president back for over a hundred years now mm. about being ordained prior to being mm. sustained by common yeah. consent. And yeah. yet you have these exceptions on the one hand and on the other hand, you have a strict adherence to say the words of the baptismal prayer mm. or the sacrament prayer. They're just it, it ends up being completely random what's cared about, you know, as you pointed out that food storage has only been mentioned once a decade for the last two decades, but Elder Bednar will get up and guilt trip everyone about not having a food storage during COVID, even though none of the new members have ever been told about it. You know, it's just like completely. And, and what, what, one of the things that annoys me the most about Kwaku L and the tits and the fair Mormon YouTubers and their Midnight Mormon stuff and all that, is these semi-desnat, um, you know, youthful, aggressive apologists, the thing they keep drilling on is buying into the, the American paradigm of this culture war. And they keep saying, you know, these critics of the church are selling an idea that there is no absolute truth, that truth will just is, you know, the postmodern philosophy that truth is random. And... Um, Hannah Syriac did an early interview on her Fair Voice podcast, which is the new youth wing of another manifestation of the youth wing of Fair Mormon, interviewing a French um, student um, at BYU. And they were being all very philosophical with each other. And, and again, bringing in all this language about postmodernism and deconstructionist theory or whatever, and, 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 and kind of accusing you and... Zelf on the shelf and John Tillin and all these other sort of people of your whole shtick or our whole shtick is to destroy marriages and to to get everyone to buy into secular postmodern Descartes sort of philosophy that there is no truth so there's no point trying it's like which is nothing to do with what anyone's saying and the irony is the church leaders themselves keep changing up what truth is They've just normalized this idea that whatever the living prophet says is true, and it takes precedent over what the dead prophets or even the scriptures say. And they don't even justify it with any kind of rational framework. They just keep teaching that over and over again. So it's all a mechanism to stop themselves being held accountable. It's all a, a cloud of propaganda and fluff to to avoid dealing with the reality that of course our prophetic leaders have made mistakes they preach things in the name of god as revelations that turned out to be literally the opposite of what god wants whether and particularly the classic case being institutional racist segregation and they they just and people like dallin oaks do not have the imagination or ability to contemplate giving up on that totalitarian worldview they think they will lose all their authority if they admit their errors um, and they will then have to share power because if they admit they're fallible that means every member of the church is empowered to make their own decisions about whether to believe or trust whatever thing they just said which is the mormonism i grew up with i grew up with the mormonism where you've got at least six tools to evaluate what a prophet says you're empowered 
Is it compatible with scripture? Do you get a spiritual witness? Does it make rational sense? Is it being taught by all of the apostles rather than just a few of them? Has there been a common consent vote about it? Um, does it feel emotionally like coming from a place of love and compassion? That's how you filter what our leaders say. We know how to do this. It's not rocket science. And if you apply those criteria, you, you've got a pretty strong tool to use to work out whether they are speaking for God or not. That's why so many people realized the November policy was completely wrong because it didn't pass any of those tests. Um, but they don't want people thinking for themselves because then they'll have to share power and they'll have to justify what they're doing. They'll have to explain themselves. They'll have to make arguments that work and they're too busy or lazy to bother with that nonsense. So it's much easier to just infantilize everyone and tell them, okay, what I'm teaching is completely different to the previous guy, but that's fine. God's just changed his mind. So ironically, while the tits people are saying it's the critics of the church who keep changing what truth is, the reality is it's actually the leaders of the church they're defending who keep cha literally changing what truth is to go with whatever the whim of the current leader happens to be. And the critics are categorized as anti-Mormons because yes. they have the temerity to point it out. And to say, no, we do believe in absolute truth. That's what this is all about, you idiots. This is the thing. It's because we want consistency. You know, what's true should be true now in the Bronze Age and whenever. And you can frame it differently. You know, as I was taught in seminary, well, God is in a, a symbiotic relationship with human civilization. If he's speaking to primitive tribal people in a desert in the, in the Bronze Age, the laws and rules he has to give them have to work for their culture. And then you can step it up with the Roman era and new technology and Pax Romana so you can have an international Christianity and will empower individuals more. And then you have the post um industrial revolution restoration of the gospel in a free democracy that makes all kinds of extra things possible now on a purely practical level uh, so god will give us more knowledge and and we'll tweak it and we'll leave some of the bad stuff behind um that narrative works for me i can do that but the truth is a journey yes we you know what we know next week will mean some of the things we thought we knew this week need changing or leaving behind because we have a better understanding now that's pure mormonism but it can't be the truth where the prophets are literally teaching the opposite things and they're both true because then you're in total 1984 orwell la la land you know god was racist but god doesn't want you to be racist but it was okay that God was racist and wanted you all to be racist and you were racist. And you just flip flop between that. And, and because so much power is concentrated in so few people's hands, Dallin Oaks can just throw a total spanner in the works. He got up at the B1 event celebrating 40 years since we stopped being racist. And the long journey with the gospel topics essays we've been on of sort of acknowledging that was never God's idea really, no. And he just said, oh, yes, it was, because I can't cope with our prophets ever being infallible, uh, being fallible, because I don't want you to think I might be wrong. So I can't allow that they were ever wrong. So we just don't know why. And again, it, it was just in public, in front of the world, they gave the whole game away of their cognitive dissonance. He stood up there saying, well, 
we have no idea why God wanted everyone to be racist. All those things, all the previous taught, prophets taught, weren't correct. And he admitted that he never felt a spiritual witness of any of them. He didn't speak up there, of course. He just he just made the choice to submit to the leader. So he's modeling in what he said. That talk, it's 15 minutes. Just watch it. It's it's a masterclass in gaslighting. Yet not, because it's so clunky and inept, but it seemed to work on some people. And he he's teaching completely contradictory ideas in the same talk you know he stands there claiming only the prophets of the church that would be me are able to receive answers from god or tell you what the truth is or give revelation but i'm telling you that all my predecessors everything they said about racism was wrong uh we just don't know and he left out the obvious elephant in the room which was well why don't you ask god for us then that's your job. And this is the thing. The Pharisees have taken over the asylum. They've flipped everything to suit them. They've changed it all up. Uh, sustaining votes are no longer the leaders being held accountable to the people, which was always the mantra in the church in the 1970s and 80s. You are accountable, accountable, accountable. Now it's you are making an un unconditional covenant vow to, to obey and believe everything these people say to you, unconditionally and in advance, as the president of the 70, Whitney Clayton, taught in his talk, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. You know, it's, they're very honest with their talk titles. It's like, it's, it's like the old dinosaurs series in the 80s, the We Say So Company. <laughs> I love that. There was, <laughs> they, were like, they were like the Simpsons before the Simpsons, lots of good social satire there. And... So he called his talk that and taught it while claiming that he wasn't telling everyone to have blind faith. And then he gave a definition of blind faith and said, real obedience is unconditional and in advance, which is literally the dictionary definition of blind, unconditional obedience. So they, they're, teaching, they, they're teaching the opposites within the talk. And Daniel Oakes at no point said, just give me a minute. I'm going to talk to God with my apostolic pr prophecy and revelator powers. I'll get the answer for you, you know, back in five minutes. So they want us to not expect an answer. They want us to not have them do miracles of healing, which G the New Testament says should follow the apostles. You know, you've got your amazing podcast all about um, the death march in conference talks, having the faith not to be healed. They don't want to have to actually do their job. They don't want to, they're, they're avoiding the responsibility of having real revelations. They're avoiding defending the faith and delegating it to amateur bumbling fools who are failing horribly. They don't want to do the historical research. You know, in um, Oaks and Ballard in their face-to-face -face with the kids said, oh yeah, we've got the Joseph Smith papers on our bookshelf. You know, obviously they were given complimentary copies um, but I haven't read them yet, you know. It's like, are you kidding? Boyd K. Packer would have them memorized by now. He'd be working out where all the landmines were, you know, the dangerous ideas that might escape. <laughs> and, and they just don't care. They have no intellectual curiosity. And that's why all their strategies that we've talked about for trying to save the youth are completely barking up the wrong tree. They, they think the gospel topics essays have fixed the problems but they don't, they open a Pandora's box because they didn't give any kind of pastoral context for processing the fact that they admit you've been lied to a lot <laughs> all your church life by your leaders. Um, 
And it's all, but it all comes down to this refusal, just stubborn refusal to acknowledge that they might be wrong and the implications of that. And if they have to talk complete irrational nonsense in a public speech to keep spinning that along and bamboozle as many people as they can, they'll do it. They're just shameless about it. They'll contradict themselves. They'll contradict each other. They'll contradict what they said two sentences earlier. And this is really what, what I, I want to thank you for, RFM, is because you, you have kind of normalised actually holding them accountable for what they say. You know, the forensic pick through what they actually just said, what it means, what the implications are, what the layer cake, and it's always a layer cake. There's always about five or six things you have to untangle here. Um, and you've done that so well in your podcasts that that has been really encouraging and helpful just to see clearly for the first time, to see what's going on and understand it. And when you understand it, you know how to, what needs to change. Thank you for the compliment, Peter. Praise from Caesar, I must say. <laughs> but, you know, this does remind me of this favorite quote of mine from H.P. Lovecraft that I mentioned in a, not too long ago, but where he said that it is the greatest mercy in the universe. Uh, the greatest mercy in the universe is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. Mm. And it strikes me that the problem that you have with the LDS church and the problem that mm. I have with the LDS church is similar, is that we are actually trying to correlate mm. all the contents of the statements by leaders of the church. And yeah. we find that when we try to correlate them, it explodes, it achieves critical mass mm. and goes kerblooey because mm. they don't correlate. They no. end up contradicting each other in a multiplicity mm. of ways. And the mm. only way, the only way to correlate them is to go with what the leaders of the church are saying now is basically just mm. believe what I'm telling you now. Yeah. And don't pay any yeah. attention to what prior leaders of the church have said. Mm. And not only that, they will even go so far as that implicate that or imply that listen to what I'm saying and not what this other apostle is saying, maybe yes. even in the same general yeah. conference. Yeah. Well, it's it's like the Kremlin watching. I grew up in the 80s watching the Kremlin. You know, well, I was. I know you were going to get nuked like in five minutes, but the nukes would hit our country in three minutes if the Cold War got hot. Um, so we, you know, my teenage years were framed by the Cold War where you are constantly watching what's going on in the, in the politics of the Kremlin and interpreting the outer signals of what was going on in the secret meetings. And our relationship with the leadership of the church was exactly like that. Every once a year, our state president would come back from his being at general conference or these private leadership meetings with the brethren and they'd just start spinning what they'd heard and, the, and this brother said this and I think it means and then he'd go off for an hour. And it was all about picking up in these tiny little morsels falling from the holy table of these great men who talk to Jesus every week. And so you did a lot of Kremlin watching, but it was always on the basis of the merest morsels of information. And any local state president completely got wrong end of the stick quite regularly and could go off on some wild tangent thinking this is what the brethren meant. And in the age without the internet, you had no way to fact check any of this. You're just living in a fog of ignorance and awe at these mysterious beings who live in Salt Lake in their tower. Um, 
But now it's all in front of us. You don't even have to Kremlin watch anymore. They just get up in front of a camera and they tell you and they contradict themselves and they give irrational arguments or they tell you not to think. And that's what is most astonishing. They go to universities and tell the kids, don't think, don't question, don't trust any sources external to the church, don't trust what's on the internet. And it's like, that's like telling people not to trust libraries, that a library is a conspiracy theory to bring down the church. And it's just barking. And it, it feels like they're kind of trapped in 1993 internet world where anyone could edit wikipedia and kind of get away with it so you couldn't really trust the internet as information it's a different world now the internet is the most accurate source of information in all of history libraries always depended on who had edited what book and you were very lucky to find any relevant information for what you're researching at all the internet is constantly peer-reviewed any honest website will have comments pages and you can fact check in seconds so the internet, as a source of information about literally anything, is the, and I'm speaking as a teacher here, is exponentially by far the most accurate way of researching and gaining information ever in the history of mankind. I just pinch myself every day that there is this thing. It has transformed my world, everything, and certainly my, my understanding of my religion. It's empowering. It's And if something's not true you can find out it's not true really quickly. So all this ridiculous propaganda, and at a time when they, in their Gospel Topics essays, basically admitting that the anti-Mormon publishers were far more accurate about Mormon history than the Mormon's own curriculum <laughs> for decades, it's just shameless and stupid. So just embarrassingly stupid. And they, and I, and I keep wanting my next line to be, and they're getting away with it. But they're not. If it'd be great if it worked and the church was exponentially growing, but one by one, people with basic intelligence and some curiosity are discovering they were lied to. And they leave. And over time, you end up with an active church membership who are predominantly people who just don't care or don't investigate those things and are not interested in the big ideas of the religion. They're just in their happy routine. They're comfortable what they're doing. They feel good when they serve people. They'll just trust the leaders. They kind of ignore most of general conference, frankly, you know, it feels nice and I'll have a little snooze. While I'm like throwing bricks at the telly or storming out, you know, and having all this high trauma because <laughs> of something Bednar just said or whatever. And, and they're just in their happy bubble. But the thing is, they're not growing the church. They're not bringing new converts in mostly. They're just doing their routines and they want things predictable. And what in, just really upsets me is in my country, we watched the Church of England do this 40 years ago we watched the other Christian churches make exactly the same mistake. They kept favouring the wishes of the older stalwart members instead of meeting the needs of the young. So the young left, and when the old people died, empty church, empty church, empty church. Every town in Britain is full of empty churches, and churches that have been there for centuries, um, except some still have a tiny, tiny, tiny congregation of elderly people keeping the lights on. And that's rapidly where we're going. 
That is literally what is happening now to the church in Britain and parts of America, I keep trying to remind Americans, even in Utah. Um, and they basically need to wake up fast to this reality because even the sort of reforming dissident communities think they've got all the time in the world. You know, well, eventually the church will come around to this and then we'll have gay marriage and la la la. I'm like, there's a time frame here. My, my, my country is no longer part of the club in 10 or 15 years or 20 years. And then most of your kids will leave as well, or they already have. Who do you think is going to be doing this stuff decades from now? You know, you need to realize these changes, epic as they are, have to happen now or it's too late. And it's probably already too late for my continent. And this is what part of what I keep hammering on about, particularly to Americans, is they, they just haven't woken up to the sense of existential urgency involved here. We're down to 15% of membership active and falling fast. And that's going to happen everywhere else. Peter, you've given us so much great information. I'm not cutting you off by any means. I want oh, to no, go no, on no, a little go. bit further. Yeah. I just have to make one small correction of something that you yeah. said. Sure. Um, it's Quaku. L. <laughs> I keep calling him Kwaku in honor of you. I'm sorry. Kwaku okay. L. Bless Thank his you. little heart. Thank you. Well, I apologize, Kwaku. There are certain now segments. Stop lying. <laughs> stop lying about the CS letter. If you stop lying, we'll say your name right. Exactly. And it's safe. Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon with a Ouija board. Yeah, right. Seriously, just utter idiots. So, so dumb. Young and dumb. Do you know what? He should start like an, a movement and call it young and dumb. What do you think? <laughs> Which is the name of his dance party company. <laughs> See, he's honest as well. This is the thing. It's not just the general authorities. He calls himself young and dumb. Like, you couldn't make this up. They're just offering it all on a plate. All you need to do is just exercise really basic critical analysis. This isn't rocket science. To, And it's a sad message for someone who wants the church to survive and thrive. But first of all, you've just got to have a reality check. Wake up to how bad it has got. <laughs> We're being lied to in general conference about things that you can fact check in nanoseconds and that these people, is it is lies. Like I've had a long argument recently with someone about, well, is it lies if they don't intend to be deceptive? It's like they're being deceptive. They know this stuff. They know they're lying. People have told them for years. They authorised the gospel topics essays. And then Quentin Cook gets up in the last conference and talks about how when the Mormons went to America, to Utah and could do their own thing, it was like this paradise of racial unity and harmony. And they were nice to the Native Americans. It's like, no, they weren't. They massacred Native Americans, enslaved hundreds of them. And Brigham Young gave a massive speech about how black people should not, you know, set foot in the temple or the priesthood. And that anyone interracially marrying should be beheaded along with their children. And, and, you know, all these buildings you're meeting in, the, the Joseph Smith Memorial Building that used to be Hotel Utah, was racially segregated until well into the civil rights era. Like, and he just gets up there and gaslights the whole thing as if none of that ever happened. Off in, a, in a conference themed around, we must stop being racist. 
And then you get the hysterical debacle where they sent Elder Stevenson to lie to black people on Martin Luther King Day in January to apologise for the racist quote from Joseph Fielding Smith being all that went into this year's Come Follow Me manual um, to explain why God cursed the Lamanites with dark skin, um, which was an edited version of an even more racist quote. So he apologised to them and told them that everyone in the church should be told to ignore the printed manual and use the online version instead at the NAACP Martin Luther King Day banquet. And then they didn't do it. He just lied. He just told them, oh, we're going to fix this. And sorry. And then they didn't do it. Like what? I would love to be a fly on the wall at whatever committee meeting bodged that up in the church office building. You know, it's... It, this is the thing. It's just become so blatantly incompetent. These people either need to retire or sort themselves out rapidly. And if they had the Zimmer frame of common consent to at least stop them doing the really dumb stuff, it would be a game changer. You know, it would change a lot. And ultimately, this does boil down to a regime change. We have to start having leadership in our church be chosen and function as the Doctrine and Covenants tells us to then they might have a revelation again. Um, But meanwhile, we're trapped in a situation where we're all held hostage to the prejudices and worldview of a bunch of people who started their adult life in the 1940s, in President Nelson's case, or the 1950s middle-class Utah. And we're all held hostage to that. And if Dallin Oaks wants to just suddenly bring back God being racist, he can. And there's diddly squat anyone can do about it. Let's go back to that because that's where I want to take this now Mm. as we move toward the conclusion, but not at it yet, because this gets into part three of Mm. your presentation on Christians Mm. versus Pharisees. The one I haven't listened to yet, but you've set it up nicely Mm. by saying that, you know, we've got all these ideas in the church that we are moving away from uh, racism. We're moving Mm. away from Mm. our uh, anti LGBTQ stance and yet you say, hold on there, Bubba Louie, not so fast mm. because you ain't seen nothing yet. And it looks mm. like if current trends maintain into the future, mm. maybe going back to the future and having a mm. lot more of that yeah. in upcoming presidencies. Well, t- President Oaks has been incredibly clear. It's, it's really fascinating. Um, again, pointing to this civil war even at the top at times. Um, I think it was in 2010, Boyd K. Packer tried to canonize the family proclamation. He gave a talk in which he described it as a revelation. And I don't know if he went off script, whether he had had his script authorized and then winged it, because the way he delivered it, it seemed to go a bit ad hoc at that minute. So it might be like, you told me I can't say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. But he did. And then President, he was president of the 12. Uh, President Monson slapped him down someone only he would have had the authority to do this so you can look it up on the church website the the written text was changed to the family proclamation is a guide or advice or something like that that we do well to follow um whereas what it actually said was this is a revelation from god um and then as soon as president monson gets so much dementia he cannot function anymore um dallin oaks is up at the the conference pulpit like a whippet and we get this series of talks with the word plan in the name the plan and the proclamation was sort of the biggie yeah and he goes for it 
he doesn't just mention in passing that it's a revelation. He declares that if you were, and you have to pay attention to his rhetoric, if you are a converted member of the church who intends to have exaltation, you have to accept everything the, the family proclamation says as revelation from God. And this is what we are all about. This is the prime directive for our era. And he's laid out when he's president, this is it. We're going to fight the world over gay marriage, even though we've already lost. Um, he repeated his stuff, you know, to, to why and why would God do this to people, you know, make, uh, sorry, Hacker also added a comment in his talk what, about people um, being born in the wrong body or with the wrong sexuality, you know, transgender issues. Um, you know, why would a loving heavenly father do that to us? He's our father you know, just perplexed. Like, of course, everyone's born a boy or a girl with the right spirit in the right body. Um, and that also got removed and ended up being the most controversial aspect of one of his talks. But so Dallin Oaks has kind of come back like 10 times as aggressively to make the same points now that President Monson can't stop him. And wasn't it fascinating that President Monson was cautious by then already about declaring the family proclamation to be revelation? Because everyone kind of expected it to be canonized really fast, and it still hasn't been. I think they realized they opened a hornet's nest. So Oakes is up there. He's saying, if you are even a Mormon, and he's given other talks where there's no loyal opposition in the church, you can't disagree with anything he says and still be considered loyal Mormon. So he's repeating the same theme. If you are converted, the word he used, a converted Latter-day Saint, if you're expecting exaltation, if you're on the covenant path, whatever, however he framed it, you have to believe this is from God. And he's been piling on the justifications ever since. He's saying, well, loads of apostles signed off on it, and there's only six of us left. So, well, that's a lot. You know, you're not the last person on the desert island, mate. And so I feel it's my duty to tell you the story. And then he flips another Mormon script. I grew up in a Mormonism that completely disparaged the Council of Nicaea and all the, the Catholic councils and conventions that created their apostate creeds, as we see it. Um, and the idea that you would make doctrine by having big arguments with conferences and committees of people hammering out a text and reviewing it and editing it and eventually voting to accept it, was just seen as the complete antithesis of true revelation, where God speaks to his prophet, they'll have a wild dream, an angel will turn up and tell them what to write down. That's real revelation. And how we laughed at the Catholics and their foolishness, thinking that's how God was going to function. But then Danny Noakes describes exactly the same system. These committees of, of general authorities and lawyers, we know, um, who met repeat over a year, he said, to hammer out a text for the family proclamation, to it, review it, revise it, make sure everyone's happy with it, and then kind of present it to the world as a proclamation. This is exactly what we were saying was the way false religions, apostate religions do to decide their doctrine. And he declared that is how revelation works in the church. And it was it was just another tick on the list of replacing Christian Mormonism with Pharisee Mormonism. It, th that was the moment that Rubicon was crossed. We are now going to make your doctrine in committees with lawyers and we'll lie about why we did it. He presented it as this bolt from the blue, this prescient prophecy 
that there was no sort of rational reason for that early on. And that's a complete lie, of course. They were creating it in response to legislation being considered in Hawaii, the first American state to consider gay marriage and legalizing same-sex marriage. And the church tried to get involved. This is your territory as a lawyer with an amicus brief, which is a friend of the court. You know, we're a community in the community that has an opinion about this. They got rebuffed because there wasn't anything overt in our doctrinal statements against gay marriage, particularly. Um, So they wrote one so that they could get themselves back into court. That's why the proclamation was written. And they they and then they in a very sexist way, completely didn't involve any women in creating it. And then they took over the women's session of conference to cancel all their talks and announce it there because they didn't want to upset the male leadership, patriarchy in action. And he just lied about that. (laughs) He left that all out and, and presented it as, as, and he, he's, there is no limit to the overclaiming or the rhetoric he'll attach to it. And he's carried it on this year. One, One thing, a lot of, um, dissident Mormons or critics of the church forget to do is read the enzyme. You know, they'll, they'll pay attention to the high profile talks in conference, but there are other ways that messages are being communicated. So I've become a bit of a, a, a sort of hound dog, you know, carefully scrutinizing what's in the church magazines. In March this year, March, 2020, Dallin Oaks wrote an article about how doctrine is authorized in the church and he's primarily selling the idea that if all the the 12 apostles and the first presidency so we'll call them the q15 the 15 apostles agree on something that makes it doctrine and in that article he says they are infallible so he's still pushing his infallibility idea even though there's a long trail of historical examples like institutional racism of all of the apostles voting to sustain something as a revelation that then gets disavowed formally by the church. But he's completely ignored that. And then you get towards the end of it and you know that there's this voice going in the back of his head, common consent, common consent, common consent. You're ignoring common consent. He knows what he's doing. So he then tries to weave in common consent as a concept into his paradigm, and it doesn't really work. And he he quotes Doctrine and Covenants 107, I think it is, and a quote from Joseph F. Smith, I think, some earlier prophet, um, which talks about how decisions are made by leading counsel of the church. But he literally jumps verses He carefully selects the verses that mention the first presidency and quorum of 12. And then he skips the verses that say that also the first quorum of 70 and the high councils of the stakes are equal in every way in authority to the first presidency and the apostles. And he skips those and all to to suit his paradigm that it's just the Q15 who make these decisions. Ironically, though, he's so incompetent, maybe it's old age, this quote of another prophet he includes to back him up mentions the first quorum of 70 and the state high councils. It actually gives the list of all the people who are authorised to authorise doctrine. So he he doesn't even edit that out of the quote he's using. He's, he's so busy jumping over verses in the doctrine covenants, he forgets to check that bit. So it's there in his article. And then he kind of tries to spin the fact that, oh, the church has always been doing common consent votes. And this is about doctrine, which is is unusual, not just about leadership callings. 
you know, the idea that doctrine is authorized is the theme of this article. Um, so he's, and, and he kind of sells it. We must do, this was a concept from God restored in 1830, uh, common consent. But his whole argument for the rest of the article has been, we don't need to ask anyone else. It's just the Q15. And you're just left uh, by the end of this. So this is in the March 2020 enzyme. Like, well, that was a word salad of interesting proportions. You know, what are you saying, dude? You've just literally contradicted yourself while trying to spin that we are still doing common consent. We haven't had a common consent vote about anything doctrinal since 1978. The vote which is presented to the church to, to stop being racist. Um, or at least stop functionally racist, the doctrines carried on. Um, and I, 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 like literally at no point in my life since I got baptised in an, an eight-year-old has anything been presented for a common consent vote of the church. And there's a Doctrine and Covenants manual, um, which is a recent one, on the church website about the Doctrine and Covenants, and he has a chapter about section 26, which is the major common consent section of the Doctrine and Covenants. And in it, it says, it's not quoting anyone, but it just says as a fact that common consent votes must be done, not just for leadership positions, but for anything that is going to impact the members of the church, you know, i.e. policy or doctrine. So they are absolutely in the same talks, in the same Enzyme articles, in how they manipulate quotes and how they gaslight contradicting themselves, teaching two literally opposing religions at once. And people are so bamboozled, they just think, or some people are, most of them leave, of course. Um, they just think, oh, it's lovely. It's all part of the whole, isn't it? And, you know, sometimes you've got to be a bully. Sometimes you've got to be like Jesus. It's just a bit of both, you know. And and this is the fundamental contradiction sabotaging ideologically literally everything we do in the church and making it a laughing stock and unless that is acknowledged and resolved we we just the church will disappear very soon and young people can see through this they're not stupid when you talk about dividing up different teachings of the church into one mm. group of pharisees and one group mm. of christians and then all yeah. of a sudden it makes a lot of sense it yeah. strikes me that Perhaps the main thing that I remember hearing from leaders of the church to try and bridge that gap and to conflate those two ideas mm -hmm. is pointing to the example of Jesus as being one who submitted to all things that mm -hmm. his father wanted him to do up to and including his sacrifice on the cross of himself, his yeah. atonement, which he didn't want to do. Father, if it be mm. possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And even in that extreme situation, Jesus mm. acceded to the will of his father and was mm. completely obedient. Now, mm. I think what ends up happening is this very common occurrence and phenomenon in Mormonism is that the leadership of the church is equated with God. Yeah. But the idea is that we have to be like Jesus because even as Jesus submitted and did everything his father, God told him to do, even so we have mm. to do everything that God tells us to do mm. through his prophets. Mm. And I think I there think, I see yeah. a, a, the conflation of the idea of being oh, like yeah. Christ and being like a Pharisee coming yes. together. Yeah. And, and this mantra, obedience is the first law of heaven. 
that again just gets to the, the missionaries keep saying and they get taught on their missions you know as they turn preach my gospel which was meant to be a liberation into a new talmud um obedience is the first law of heaven it's like well no in the Mormon paradigm obedience was the first and only law of lucifer's plan of salvation you obey 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 the first laws of heaven are love, 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 and then a long list of love, then some more love, bit of charity, some love. Those are the laws of heaven and thinking for yourself. And you don't obey anything until you've checked it first. And this is why I'm so flabbergasted and horrified that the relentless mantra now of every single member of the first quorum, of the first quorum, sorry, the first presidency, they've all given talks, Nelson, Oakes, and Iring, like the weepy one turns out to be Goebbels. He's the one telling you it's a sin to think or speak of <laughs> leaders of having weaknesses. I thought he was just all about emotion and feelings, but it turns out he's got this ludicrous totalitarian Pharisee Lucifery doctrine as well. And it just staggering, you know, he came out of the woodwork rather startlingly um, with his power of sustaining faith talk. And it's, but the point, my, my comeback to that always is, well, the vast majority of what Mormon prophets have taught is you pray about it, you check first, you study the scriptures and then decide. We, we are not like the born again Christians who will just throw you into a baptism because you just got saved. We insist on teaching you first. We will do discussions. You will learn the doctrine before you commit to it. You will understand it. You will then seek a spiritual witness before you make any kind of decision or commitment. Um, you know, the Mormon thing is meant to be a long process of pondering, ponder, ponderize it, pondering and pray, uh, reflect, check. Is it in the scriptures? Does it feel right? Does it make intellectual sense? Um, don't jump on anything. And what, you know, one of the great jewels that Mormonism offers the world is Alma 32, which basically applies the scientific method to getting a religious testimony. It's a game changer. It's very simple, but there it is. And it teaches that you start with the seed of something that might be true, your hypothesis. You do, and it uses the word experiments to test if there's any proof that this is a good belief or concept and it's going to work. And if it works, that's lovely. But you then review your experiment like a scientist would. And then it has this incredibly important caveat. It says, this doesn't mean you know the truth of everything. You only know the thing, the truth of the one thing you've done the experiment about. You are now going to need to go on to further experiments to add the other pieces to your religion. And it really clearly states that warning not to overclaim. But the whole shtick of Mormonism in general, which, you know, some podcasters and other analysts have really analysed very well, and of the current, what the, in these face-to-face -face broadcasts, what the leaders of the church are over and over telling to the kids, is if you get a spiritual witness, i.e. feel warm and fuzzy, it could be elevation emotion, could be a divine being entering your body, whichever, um, that something's true, like, oh, I, I like the Book of Mormon, that seems to have some good information in, or I feel good about Joseph Smith as a prophet, you then assume that all of the rest is true. And this is literally what Henry B. Iring's son, um, Henry Jr., taught his students at BYU-Idaho. If you feel warm and fuzzy when you repent of your sins, 
that means every detail of every Mormon scripture and anything any Mormon prophet has ever claimed, even though they contradict each other, he doesn't think about that. Um, that's all true. And if Joseph Smith's the prophet, this prophet 200 years later, who is called in a completely different way to how Joseph Smith was called, must also be completely true. And it's this overclaim from the one spiritual witness experience. And they keep trying to come back to that. And in doing so, they ignore all the intellectual side of things. They ignore the rational message. They ignore the fact that we're studying the scriptures and we understand these ideas and you're not making them work. They're contradicting each other. Um, and all of that secondary stuff that Corbridge and others try to dismiss. Something Bill Real has observed is that there seems to mm. be a different set of rules at play between people who are investigating the church and yeah. the same people once they join the mm. church. The message to them when they're investigating is read, mm. study, mm. ponder, pray to get your own personal witness. Mm. and Challenge your paradigms. Think yes. differently. Get out of your box. Yeah. And then as soon as you get baptized, now really it's no longer about that. It's no longer yeah. about studying and finding out for yourself. Mm. It's about doing what you're told to do. What do you think about yeah. that? Absolutely. And it shouldn't be because that wasn't the religion I was taught growing up. And this is the thing, you know, I've, we're still doing both. That isn't the only message. We're also getting the other message. These scriptures about being self-empowered have not gone away. You know, some people, you get these sort of cute memes of everything I need to know I learned at nursery school, like share your food and don't hit the other children. Everything you need to know at Mormon, about Mormonism, all its jaws, its fundamental principles are the seminary scriptures. And I was encouraged to study, understand, and memorize as a child Doctrine and Covenants 58 and Doctrine and Covenants 121. And these are game-changing concepts. DNC 58 says you are empowered. God has already given you permission to get engaged in anything that seems good or true or right to you. You know, we trust your intelligence. Go for it. God will help you. And the wording doesn't talk about being inspired by the Holy Ghost. God is not telling you what that thing is. You have the ideas because you're a little God in embryo. You know, walk, little child, fly. It's fantastic. That's You've the one about permission. God's, that's the one about God saying it is not meat that I should command in all things. No. And and it actually says if you if you do only do what you're told by the leaders and do it grudgingly, you are damned. So it's like there is no neutral zone. This whole um path to exaltation that the Pharisees are offering with unconditional obedience to them. That one scripture completely destroys it as the path to damnation. You are damned if all you're doing in your religious life is waiting for the leaders to tell you what to do, and then you're doing it and probably a bit reluctantly because it wasn't, you know, you're not really buying into it. You, you've already got permission from God to fly. This is what Christianity was about. You have the gift of the Holy Ghost. You don't need the laws of Moses anymore. You don't need the Talmud. The Spirit will tell you each day what to do, and you'll have much more flexibility, and you'll be able to convert the world rather than hiding away in your own community. That's such a fundamental Mormon principle. It's what they taught me as a kid. So, you know, my jaw drops when I now hear the apostles teaching literally the opposite of my seminary scriptures, for goodness sake. And then you shift to section 121, which is, that, that's the, if, if my testimony of Mormon ever leaves me, that is the last thing you will have to like pull from my cold, dead, clutching hands. 
is section 121 of the Doctrine Covenants. And that's about the powers of the priesthood being inseparably yes. connected with the powers of heaven? Yeah. It begins with, it's taken from a series of letters or reflections that Joseph wrote in jail. And for the first time, he's really experiencing disempowerment. He's experiencing unrighteous dominion. He knows what it feels like to be the victim of a system that will oppress and control you. And he he's, has these huge epiphanies about power in the church and how that functions. And after his rant at God and why aren't you sorting this mess out, peace, my brother, things will be okay. And then the epiphany comes after this suffering. Um, the only way priesthood can, many are called, but few are chosen. Why are they not chosen? Because they, they think that this is about their own power, their own abilities, that they're authorized now, they can do what they want. They'll be hypocrites, they'll cover their sins, they'll act out their pride, they will tell other people how to behave. Um, and it says the real priesthood can only function through gentle persuasion, through truth, through unfeigned sincere compassion. And you cannot refer to your authority. You cannot say you must do this because I am the prophet, I'm the apostle, I'm the bishop, I'm the research president, whatever. They, you can't use that as the basis for people cooperating with you. And we've got a leadership now who just endlessly go on about referencing their own authority. Um, the only anything you do to try and influence other people without guile, with no manipulation, there's lots of really gorgeous um, adjectives and nouns in there, like the words chosen, I just think are inspired. Um, the only way you can actually lead other humans to do anything, and you can imagine this playing out in the debates between Jesus and Lucifer in the, in the pre-existence, the only way to really change someone else and genuinely change them for themselves is you have to persuade them. What you ask them to do or invite them to understand has to be self-evidently true and powerful. You, that you don't even, you could be a tramp off the street. You don't need to be an apostle just by what you say will speak for itself. And then I'll be with you and you will change their hearts. And like Jew from heaven, like imperceptibly, invisibly, power, glory, priesthood will distill upon you and upon them as you journey to become sincerely yourself truth, not a robot controlled by leaders, which was Lucifer's plan, not an empty shell looking like you're doing everything right, but you will just become that enlightened being. Um, and the second you step out of those parameters, your priesthood has gone. So we keep getting all these statements, and, and I, I, as someone who's vocal in my criticism of leaders, it's sort of, why are you criticizing the Lord's anointed? You're not allowed to. You covenanted in the temple not to speak evil of the Lord's anointed. And you can have arguments about who that is. Technically, Jesus is the Lord's anointed, according to the Old Testament or New Testament or whatever. But anyway, if we're going to include the apostles, why are you doing that? And I'm like, well, the second they stop doing what they're meant to be doing, they aren't anointed anymore, are they? <laughs> Amen to the priests of that man. They've, they've, they've got no authority. They just threw it in the bin because they started manipulating you. They lied to you. They used guile. They left things out of their quotes in their enzyme talk that were crucial to the meaning of their message and actually contradicted the message they were trying to make you believe. The second they did that, 
they stopped being having authority. And if you want to get nerdy about it, they aren't an apostle anyway because they appointed themselves, or at least the first presidency. They're making it up. They're charlatans. They're imposters. They pretended. You didn't. No one voted for them. They they have not functioned with authority. The decision of who would be in the first presidency was not ratified by the people until a farce that happened months later, which they would ignore if you voted against them anyway, probably. And and I keep saying common consent is the answer. Ultimately, the the only long term solution to all of these issues is regime change to practice common consent, which okay. thank goodness is within Mormon paradigms. It's not yes. inventing a new religion. It's doing what we're meant to be doing. I, I'm not starting a new church. You know, that we can make it happen. I'm sorry. Go for this it. Is, this is, no, this is actually where. I wanted to go here on the final yeah. stretch, which is I think yeah. you've done a great job of identifying the problems, the fact mm. that the problems are causing the church to fail in membership yeah. and activity. Yeah. And yet you are out here fighting the good fight of yeah. faith, trying to work from within, trying to call for repentance as true prophets do from outside the structure to those who are in control of the structure historically. Mm. So here's my question for you. What does the church have to do to succeed instead of failing? And yeah. do you have any hope of them hearing your cry? The hope I have for hearing the cry is it's not just me. If you go into the Facebook groups teeming with thousands of people who are either struggling uh, or have left the faith where they're allowed to speak freely, they are all reaching the same conclusions. And in a way, but the reason I'm in this point is not I've sat on my own and I'm also the wise all-knowing one. Uh, my patriarchal blessing tells me one of my gifts is to appreciate good teachers. You know, I've absorbed like a sponge. I've been spending 10 years exploring every avenue of different groups of people trying to fix the mess. And that has taught me so much. And there's this huge, if you're struggling yourself, just get online, listen to RFM podcasts. Mormon stories are incredible. There are support groups. I found Waters of Mormons being amazing that they're not keen on people shuffling, throwing people at them, but they're actually far more open-minded than I expected. And they're, they're, that group is designed for members of the church who are intending to stay, but who are struggling um, or stay connected to the church in some way. Um, and, uh, there's all these people out there and and they're all reaching the same answers there is this hive mind wisdom this is why the common consent concept is so powerful because it really works I, I just several years ago on the um by common consent uh bloggernacle group um someone posts the thing about well missionary work's gone up gone tits up what are we going to do to save it and within 24 hours you had hundreds of amazing experienced members of the church from all different positions had knocked together an amazing new missionary program for the whole church that they agreed on would work um, with quite a strong service emphasis and all kinds of things and having a deeper intellectual version of the discussions and all these great ideas. That was 24 hours. And we're now used to waiting for hour, for years for the leadership to take a tiny baby step in slightly the right direction. So that that is my hope is that there is that knowledge and wisdom experience in the collective membership. And my hope is that by speaking up and being a voice 
in earshot of people who are still in the church and are, are the leaders, you know, I've got relatives who are all bishops and all of that good thing, um, that we just need to start recognizing our own abilities and that we're already empowered by God to be anxiously engaged in good things. And another thing that gives me hope, really, I'll, I'll just sort of give two or three examples from what's happened in my stake of different journeys. I have an amazing state president. He's a convert of 10 years. He's an academic, um, very earnest to do the right things. Um, I ended up being quite vocal in the Protect Every Child campaign um, of, and appeared on British national television um, advocating with two other um, members of the church in Britain for Sam Young's uh, petition and talking about these issues. And I got to say masturbation on daytime news television. So literally anything I accomplish hereafter is insignificant by comparison. You know, I can die tomorrow. Um, so <laughs> that was that was the main reason for doing it. But there were there were senior people in the High Council and release site and, and just old-timer members in our stake who were very concerned that our child safeguarding efforts were inadequate. And they had already been working on a safeguarding policy that would actually meet professional standards. And several of them, or loads of us in our professions, are trained in child safeguarding. We know what the basic standard is, and the church isn't anywhere close to it. Um, and they'd already created a draft. And me doing that, I'd, and the state president was so gracious, he let me give it a once over. I offered suggestions from my experience with that training as a teacher. And we now, in our stake, have a safeguarding protocol that is almost perfect. He didn't feel he could go as far as um, banning one-to-one -one interviews completely, um, which is the final thing that really must happen. But he insists that everyone working with young people should have a background check, um, which should be absolutely basic in any system of the kind. And this is because we've had our own scandals. The bishop in my ward did jail time for child pornography offences and and you know, and we've had a high counselor in a similar situation. So we have experienced the trauma of that kind of a scandal going on amongst the church leadership. And then everyone who sent their kids alone into an interview with these people have to ask themselves the question, what happened? Um, so that, that and um, we've got amazing efforts being made to support and integrate LGBTQ people in our stake and a neighboring stake where people in senior leadership roles are taking responsibility for this and making it happen and offering firesides with really great training on awareness and discussing how we can support people. Um, so I'm actually seeing on the ground here um, how local innovation to just pick it up and do it anyway can really make the good stuff happen. And the pattern usually in the church is if something works locally, they will take it on internationally because they love a good idea that's working. So that is a dynamic that's always been there for grassroots members to impact policy change on a larger scale. The other, one of the other empowering reasons for hope is the internet itself. That's been an absolute game changer. Of course, it has led millions of people to leave the church uh, as they found out how much they were lied to. But alternately, this is a way that people with ideas for saving it can talk to each other, communicate, can share ideas, test them, knock them off if they're rubbish, reach a sort of collective consensus of what the changes need to be. And then that becomes a normalized mindset. And as sadly we know, for the last century at least, 
every step of progress made by the leadership has been following the world. They followed the world to end racism. They followed the world to downplay the sexism, usually far too late. They've followed the trends in the world, the moral compass of the center of gravity of secular modern Western society to be more LGBTQ inclusive. Um, so if that's the only dynamic we've got at the moment, let's use it then. Let's change the consensus of opinion at grassroots and then they have to follow it because that's how they've been doing it for decades, usually far too little, too late. So that's another dynamic for change. And I think um, also, in a sense, promoting the doctrinal strengths that we have. The Our leaders are not theologians. They don't even understand the the theological treasures they're sitting on. We need to get our fight back, be a bit more combative, combative with other Christians. Yes, hold their hands and run food shelters, but why not promote our idea of the Godhead as being more ethical than their one or what we have to offer doctrinally? You know, let's, let's re-embrace our unique selling points um, because they are still great and, and wonderful. And it just, I want to cry every time I read the, look through another Come Follow Me manual that ignores nearly all of them and is just completely dumbed down to proof texts for some kind of doctrinal mastery program. And it's what you teach eight-year-olds, you know. So we need to rediscover our treasures. That's the reason to fire people up. That's why I've always been excited about my religion. Um, Back when, back yeah. when the church was doing the manuals on the teachings mm. of the presidents of the church, yeah, they had one for Lorenzo Snow, and it was actually rather thick compared to the others, as I recall. And I remember somebody who was in church education somewhere having said about that manual, it's like the committee picked all the least interesting things that Lorenzo Snow ever said and put them into one manual. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Mormonism I grew up with, people had the Journal of Discourses on their shelves. I've been following some sort of blog and knuckle threads recently where like, oh, you could only, you know, people would only find out about the Journal of Discourses if they could get to a library. It's like, no, our whole religion in the 70s, they were in the, the study guides for the high priest group. They were, they, you know, people were so starved of information. All you had was Bruce R. McConkie's Mormon Doctrine and the Journal of Discourses and some apocalyptic nuttiness from Cleon Skousen. That was the standard Mormon library. You know, people in my little pokey ward in England had Journal of Discourses, and they were trying, as you kind of commented earlier, trying to make it all work as a whole. And you then had this sort of, let's get back to basics crackdown with, with Hinckley and others, you know, let's just focus on Christ because that stuff's weird. But unfortunately, a lot of the juicy treasures got thrown out with the bathwater. And... I mean, just one example for me, that is the massive game changer. I was very involved in Christian Union at school and at university. Um, so I've always been sort of this local level apologist fighting for the faith again, you know, in, in contention, as it were, or whatever you want to call it with the other Christians while loving them to bits. And I came across a book in the library by a Cambridge theologian called Don Cupid called Crisis of Moral Authority. And it was written in the 60s. And it basically totally deconstructs the credibility of Orthodox Christianity. And its fundamental point is if God, this one being, is the source of all truth and reality and knowledge and the laws of the universe, he is a sadistic monster because he creates people out of nothing, ex nihilo, knowing with his foreknowledge he's going to end up torturing a huge percentage of them in burning vats of lava forever 
Why would you make them that way in the first place if you know the outcome? And the best answer the Christian Union people had were, well, God loves our free agency, so he's given that as a gift. It's like, yeah, but he's really set you up here, isn't he? Um, and, and I was like, oh, my gosh, that deconstructs the entire Christian religion. Their God is a sadistic monster, of course, if he is the one being the source of all reality, because he made this mess. It's his, it's his ethical responsibility if any of us fail. And then I was like, oh, my heck. Our weird doctrine we're a bit embarrassed about that there is like an ongoing series of gods, that God is like a job description, that the laws of the universe and reality are in a sense bigger than the individual personality of each god, that there there is almost a, a, a sort of a neutral reality at work to truth. God didn't invent this paradigm we all exist in of what is good and bad it's just is it's a universal law that then completely absolves each individual deity of their responsibility for that system what they're doing is entirely virtuous they're helping other intelligences to progress and grow and giving them the opportunities to learn um, and there's karmic consequences whatever path you take but it's not god wanting to punish you or setting you up to be punished um, and I suddenly realized how these obscure, random, weird things in Joseph Smith's teaching were theological bombshells that are our nuclear weapons to transform global Christianity. And, you know, dissidents often sort of go, oh, we borrowed this three heavens idea from the Christadelphians and this came from that and the other. But there is still so much like game changing original thought, even some of his syncretizing, bringing ideas together in ways no one else had thought of for 2000 years, uh, was some kind of religious genius, wherever you think it was coming from. That's the, the root of my religion. That's my excitement. We're sitting on these doctrinal gold mines that actually solve the fundamental flaws that cause people to leave Christianity. But would any of our apostles even think of that? And that can seem like arrogant. Well, my favorite thing isn't your favorite thing. I'm going to sulk. But this is actually quite, it's actually quite fundamental to like the entire edifice of Mormon theology. So I don't think I'm off on a, on a tangent there. And there's so much there that we have to offer. But ultimately, the game changer is going to have to also be to persuade Mormonism to wean itself off American exceptionalism. They've got to stop just living in their Utah bubble where they think everyone goes to BYU and gets married as students. And then they start having babies young. You know, they're one of my... I think it's in episode three, the um, Rasband's recent face-to-face in September, I think it was, with the young, single adult, the young adults, was just appalling. They sat there in this weird sort of film set of the Jerusalem temple, so it looked extra culty, not their fault. They had to do social distancing and their original venue had shut down. Um, and it was just the one life pattern for the pharisees based on their life in 1950s utah middle class yeah we are oh, we're so excited to be here i've just had my first great grandchild isn't that lovely you look too young for that dear um the your your hope is if you stay in the church and put all your troubles on the shelf you too will have these children who grew up in the gospel and they'll our children have all married brilliantly and it's all going great you'll have this huge leg- legacy of progeny in the church and that's all they taught as a role for women and and for all these young people to do 
And it just made me so angry because it's all a lie. It's all a lie. That immediately, there are one of the things in those presentations to the apostles, they acknowledge the stats are back then, 12 years ago, 100 female young adults for every 70 male. So straight away, even if all of the rest paired up, 30% of your female ordinance, audience will never be able to marry in the temple. Of those, of those men, surely a good percentage of them are not eligible. You shouldn't touch them with the barge pole. So let's, let's agree a conservative 50% of women growing up in our church will never be able to marry in the temple. You're asking them to be nuns. Of those who do marry or marry in the temple, 50% of all temple marriages end in divorce. If you marry young, which they're urging these kids to do, the percentage is much higher than 50%. So you're now talking about the path they are offering as why it's all worth it and why to stay in the church and your guaranteed outcome, what they sold to my parents was, is actually only even gonna be even possible as a potential chance for 20% of their audience. So isn't it interesting that the statistic for people leaving the church is 80% of our young people by the time they're 30? Mm. Because what they're offering is only relevant to 20%, even as a starting point. And by telling them to marry young and start having children, they are setting them up for the worst case scenario. The way to screw up your marriage most is to marry too young and start children too early. And then mum is trapped at home. She doesn't continue her education. She ends up dependent on antidepressants because it's grueling and hard work popping out babies and raising them, which is a noble and virtuous thing to do. But there are ways to do it without bankrupting yourself and ending up on antidepressants. And the other thing which really makes me angry is we've constantly now in the absence of anything theologically interesting to say we've got this emphasis on prudence on being sensible with your money on um you know get your education get trained up look after yourself self-sufficiency so the church doesn't have to use any of its billions to to fund you but the second they are faced with young people making the decision can i afford to have children their message is, and it wasn't just a couple of months ago, oh, forget all that. doesn't matter if you can't afford it. Have the babies. God will look after you. Miracles will happen. You know, cash will fall from the sky into your lap. Um, just go, go forth and make babies. It'll all be fine. And again, that's a lie because they already know that 80% of those babies are going to leave the church and break their parents' hearts. Mm. They're not going to have this legacy that all that sacrifice is worth it for because their kids will leave the church unless things change radically. Kids are not going to stay in a church that's lying to them, that is racist, that is homophobic, that is sexist beyond all belief. Um, they, they just won't. And as um, Richard Bushman said in his you know, video recorded little firesight, the church leadership have chosen to prioritize the grandmothers of San Pete County in Southern Utah over their grandchildren. And this is exactly the mistake that all the mainstream churches in, in Great Britain made uh, decades ago. Instead of adapting to meet the needs of the young, to modernize their worship styles, to have a message that was relevant to the young people, 
they chose instead to let the old um, fuddy-duddy Pharisees who didn't want anything to change and would reliably turn up and make the flowers each week. They got to have their way, so the kids left, and then they died, and there's nothing left. Kaput. And now we're doing exactly the same thing. They are not... They, they don't have the, intellect, the, the intellectual curiosity, these general authorities, to even imagine what the solutions are going to be, but they could pay people to tell them, and I'll tell them for free, and millions of other people will. Um, and if they don't make this change soon, they're going to destroy the church on their watch. And they kind of know it and they'll just pass the baton on to the next person who's going to die in a few years and hope they deal with it instead. Right. The church has so many problems that it's facing right now, Mm. but it occurs Mm. to me that the reason for that is that this is a natural result of kicking the can down the road for decades. Absolutely. They've just avoided responsibility. They've made a virtue of avoiding responsibility. Darlene Oaks, you know, we don't give apologies. Or when they do, they lie. Like I was amazed. Our elder thingy went to the black people and apologized. It's like, oh, I thought this was the church that doesn't apologize. We apologize to you for putting this racist quote in our study guide for the entire membership of the church and still sending it out, even though we knew it was in it before we posted them. But instead of use our millions to pulp those and reprint, we'll just lie to you. We'll tell people, we'll tell you, we're going to tell people to only use the online version and we won't do that. And that will just deal with it. They just, they, they don't, they're not capable and they should retire. It's cruel to keep people running an international church when they're great grandparents. It's elder abuse. It's like who, 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 no one can, they used to be quite sparky, a lot of these people, but they're just tired. And, and so it becomes this cycle for all of us. I got called on a mission by a man in a coma. You know, Ezra Taft Benson, I'm pretty sure was, on a bed in, with a drip in his arm, unconscious by the time some machine signed my mission call. Well, that's why you went to Alabama. <laughs> that's the only rational explanation, seriously, which I loved. I, that My heart lives there. Those people are incredible and they have amazing food. Um, yes, all my many racist. thousands of listeners in Alabama, that's not <laughs> a slam. We love you. No, oh, just I, I love them passionately. Um, amazing, very dysfunctional. They need to stop being so racist, but wow, what an amazing culture. And yeah, fascinating. Um, Peter, we have about 14 minutes left. I want you to address the following issue, if you would, during our remaining time. You have been vocal and unsparing, and increasingly Mm. so, in Mm. your criticisms of the LDS Church. Have you received any pushback from leaders in response? Yeah, um, I've probably nearly used up all of my Mormon cred points. I'm from, I'm a fourth generation member. I always turn up for meetings if I don't forget they're on. I'm willing to serve. I have interesting things to say in lessons, even if it freaks everyone out. But when it's when it's tumbleweed, the teachers are usually grateful and they go, Peter, what do you think of this? And I'd, I'll jump in. So I'm there, I'm present, I'm I'm enthusiastic about Mormonism while also trying to gently ease in little tiny bits of the mountain of pain that they'll get into if they actually start researching it properly um, to inoculate them a bit. Um, so, and, and I'm still living in the stake I grew up in, in effect. It splits when I was younger, um, but it's the same people who were there when I was a baby. So there's a lot of residual tolerance and affection, um, but it can't have escaped people's notice that I'm being public in, in you know, and particularly in my Facebook groups. 
Um, my state and indeed, president, it has not yeah. escaped their no, notice, has it? No. So my state president is amazing. He's done due diligence. He has sat and listened to me waffle on for hours in several meetings and been very gracious. He's a great listener. He's a bit annoying because he's really inscrutable. You don't always know what he's saying, but then that's my fault because who gets a word in edgeways? Um, so in, I'll take entire responsibility for that. Um, but without being too specific, let's just, we've, we both know the game. Um, and so we have had a discussion along the lines of if I continue posting things like this, church discipline may become inevitable. Um, in a way that becomes an opportunity because if, because for apostasy, uh, area authorities have to be involved an area presidency would have, has to be consulted under the current rules for a d discipline for what's categorized as apostasy. Um, and in a way they then pour things up if they were going to do two dillions, they've got a lot of Facebook posts to read through. Um, so they will hear all my crap. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but I'm not overestimating like the glorious moment of vindication that would be. And after we sort of reached that point, I did have a bit of a dark night of the soul. You know, I have paid attention when Bill Real and Sam Young and um, uh, Dylan and others have talked about how even though in a sense being excommunicated was no surprise on the trajectory they were on, it still actually felt very violent and devastating. And I, I think COVID has helped. We've all had a bit of a sabbatical and been able to step back a bit and get out of our habits and just look at what we really think and want and believe. My conscious decision is as long as I can to remain at church. I have um, peers at church who are excommunicated members who still come faithfully. Um, and they're inspiring to me, though I'm not sure I'd cope with the fatwa on being able to contribute to discussions or give talks or actually serve. Uh, that might feel quite pointless. So anyway, I had to kind of consider worst case scenario. My personal view is whatevs, you know, they're not even a first presidency. They can do what they like. I don't think God's excommunicating me for teaching the truth or just trying to fix some stuff. Um, you know, so I'm not, I'm not in a sense concerned about my eternal soul by any means. Um, the, but I'd rather not. And I'm very, I am completely aware that if that Rubicon is crossed, you lose your influence and voice to some extent. You know, I am currently in a sense, I'm an active member. I'm faithful. I'm an insider. I want to be the change. Um, but my, my calculation in effect is kind of twofold. One, the issues directly impacting my ward the issues that have literally caused members who served in my bishopric, um, the young adults that I have taught along with everyone else and supported, and that amazing couple missionaries who served in our ward have nurtured and engaged with the, in the intellect, the big ideas of Mormonism, which they love. They have all gone because of these larger problems, the pharisaical judgmental culture making them never feel good enough how young people get traumatized in worthiness interviews. That whole thing is completely dysfunctional still. Um, they are internet savvy. So it takes them five seconds to research what the problems in the church are and to read the gospel topics essays and to read the CS letter and to read fair Mormon and see all the problems gathered in one place and have their 
trust in the leaders blow up. And these are spiritual giants. These are people who did amazing things on their missions, who you can have a gospel discussion with, you know, young adults who that will blow you away with their knowledge and their intensity and their passion for Mormonism. And I really see myself in them because that's that's me. And if we have made the church toxic for the product of its own thing, the church teaches us to be thoughtful and rational about our religion, to research, to get an education, to be passionate, to be idealists. And then it will punish you once you reach, once you finish institute, they will punish you for thinking anymore, for researching, for being an idealist, for wanting us to actually practice what you preach. For telling um, the truth. For telling the truth. I mean, my gosh. So I'm, I'm not afraid of it. Um, as everyone who knows me knows, if they want to try some kind of court of love, I will bring my A game. It will be spectacular. Um, and I will, would challenge anyone trying that to actually read, I don't know, maybe just 15 hours of my stuff. <laughs> um, they're going to they're gonna suffer for this RFM. It is not going to be easy for them, bless their hearts, if they dare try it. Um, and I don't mean that arrogantly. I just mean it's so easy to like pop the bubble of illusion that people are hiding behind. Um, and ultimately, I was thinking, you know, what, what I would just say is, look at your real lives. You were promised things by this church. If you were faithful, your kids would not stray far from the, the Mormon nest. And I know that almost everyone sitting around that table, if I had a whole high council judgment thing, their kids have left. And I'd just look them in the eye and I'd say, nothing you have done raising your own children has been able to keep them in this amazing church that has done so much for them and this whole team effort to love them and give them amazing experiences through primary and youth and seminary and get them on missions and all the rest they still left do you genuinely think that reading something i've posted on my own facebook page is some kind of deal changer that that's what's tipping people into apostasy I mean, are you freaking kidding me? You know, look, if the whole machine of the church could not keep your kids in, why do you think I'm the problem? On and, the other and, side of that, Peter, yeah. on the other side of that, Peter, mm. you have to be the problem. Yes, because otherwise you have to criticize the leadership. And this is where the, the recent, you know, the other half of the apologists of the church committing collective suicide in the last month has been the more academic, uh, reasonable ones, all signing this manifesto for, um, what is it, a, a radical orthodoxy. But they completely self-sabotage by tiptoeing towards um, honest appraisal of our history and, and being willing to reform and make changes and progress with a, an absolute oath of loyalty to the leadership of all time. Well, you can't change anything in the church without acknowledging where the leaders made mistakes and taught things as God as God's truth that are not true. And even they themselves have repudiated other leaders. You know, but President Nelson did this in throwing Monson and Hinckley under the bus. The Gospel Topics essays do it. So weirdly, this this middle way apologist intellectual Mormons coming to the rescue of the church, please don't be so fanatical. Let's have a, a, a reasonable middle way. They themselves are asserting an orthodoxy that's more orthodox than what the apostles themselves have published. 
and you just think, how are you so stupid? Why did you fall for this? And again, it just shows, you know, they've, I think some of them have spent so long trying to appear orthodox while being revolutionary, bless their hearts. You know, the givens are my heroes. Um, but it just feels like they've spent so long facing one way and saying one thing and facing the other to the people and saying something different that it has ultimately compromised their ability to see clearly what the real problems are. Um, and uh, they've lost a lot of respect this month from a lot of people who have been sort of, you know, gunning for them and not gunning, what's the right word, cheering them on um, to, to create an intellectually credible Mormonism that is fit for purpose for the 21st century. Uh, so, you know, this it's been amazing. So ultimately, in a way, I've almost found that a bit vindicating that I'm kind of on the right path. Um, and all the people who share these ideas, I should emphasize, um, you could, this, is, this thing isn't going to be fixed without a root and branch ideological and organizational change, which may be a pipe dream. But my hope is there are enough intelligent, rational, professional people who in their workplaces are analysts, they're managers, they understand systems, they can find solutions to problems. Yet when they walk through the chapel door, they usually put their brain in a bucket and sit there passively while the same old missionary program that didn't work for the last 30 years is presented to them again as the new way to save everyone by reaching out to the inactives. And at some point, those two worlds need to join up. They need to bring their professional intelligence and skills to their ministry in the church. And they need to wake up to what the problems really are, to actually listen instead of projecting the idea that people only leave if they're sinful or lazy um, and, get, and get it. And I'm seeing locally increasingly very concerned local leaders who understand they're in deep doo-doo now with plummeting numbers and their own children leaving the church, they've woken up. And even, you know, an amazing guy who was a, a sort of very traditional state president um, when I was in my 20s is now, after his son, who was a bishop, left the church and was very articulate and thoughtful at explaining his reasons for doing so, he's now um, involved with trying to do firesides for people with questions and get, getting people familiar with the gospel topics essays and being part of the solution. So there are people who've, who've cut, I mean, the, the Bridges book by, is it Osler? Um, has been a game changer. My state presidency have read it, my Bishop Rick of, or Bishop have read it. The, these great um, bridge building efforts um, to get people to understand and engage with faith crisis, which should really be called trust crisis. Um, these people haven't lost their faith. They passionately believe goodness, truth, the, you know, the Christian way. But the trust is what's the crisis because the church is not practicing what it, that it taught them to believe. These people are not leaving because they've lost faith. You know, my stepson, all these other amazing young people have had to leave the church because it was punishing them for having those principles and holding to them, for choosing compassion over hatred of the gay people, for choosing truth over a fairy tale that they're being told full of lies. Um, and my, my passion is to make the church safe for them to return. 
and every so often someone will just comment on something I've said. If if what you're talking about actually happened, I'd come back or I wouldn't have had to leave. Um, and that that's what it's all about for me. I'm not here to destroy the church. I'm here to do whatever little bit I can to help it. And that, that can come across as hubris. But my huge relief and joy has been this epiphany that the solutions here are not outside the Mormon paradigm or even the LDS one. I don't need to join Community of Christ. I don't need to become a snufferite. I do not need to just go home and sulk. Um, the, the solutions are there and always have been in our own scriptures uh, with a bit of research into the church's real history. You can discover them, how the church used to be organized, how power used to be distributed before the, the apostolic coup under Brigham Young. Um, and then you can notice the scriptures that have been there all along in your quad that tell you all this stuff. And it, it, people just need permission to do the right thing. They just need to be told, yes, you're right. Of course, this is wrong. <laughs> this is right. Yes, your critical analysis of the situation is spot on. And there are thousands of other people who agree with you. And it's so reassuring to discover these face Facebook communities and social media groups where people can speak freely. And this is what they're all saying. The, the problems are clearly identified. You are doing an amazing job to speak up, Bill Real. I just, I can't express enough what a, a lifeline um, your podcast and Bill's and Mormon stories and Gina Colvin's Thoughtful Faith and all of the others have been to hold on to sanity in this crazy world where the apostles are now teaching Lucifer's plan of salvation. Literally the stuff we were told to avoid in the temple endowment and be wary of, they're doing it all. You can buy anything in this world with money. Their security is in their Enzyme Peak $100 billion fund. That's the security for the future of the church. Just listen to, read that interview with the presiding bishopric. It says it all. It's the Pharisees have taken over. The real security of the future of the church is its members, is its people, is its young people. If the church was in financial straits, do they genuinely believe Mormons wouldn't dig into their pockets for a bit extra? But instead, they're taking money from the poorest, hoarding it in eye-watering pots of vaults of stocks and shares, over a, the total assets with the land assets, purely commercial, estimated at $300 billion. And on his world tour, President Nelson told the people of Kenya, one of the poorest countries on earth, whose national debt he could pay off with the fraction of the church's assets, that if they pay their tithing, their full tithe, which is a lie, because tithing is meant to be 10% of your profit, um, not 10% of your income. So you don't pay it if you don't have a profit. A full tithe of those, as they've redefined it to the rich American church, then their country will come out of poverty and be wealthy. The, the prosperity gospel lie of the televangelists who have wreaked havoc in Africa. He, he was saying that. And then the bishopric, the presiding bishopric, while defending having this secret hoard that they didn't tell us about, it got revealed against their will. One of them had to get in that if you have to choose between paying tithing or feeding your children, you should pay your tithing because the church will feed your child. 
and implying now that we have all this money saved up, even though none of it has been spent on welfare or anything to do with the church, just some illegal payments that the IRS is investigating to prop up commercial investments. And they said this sitting in an office in front of an antique table. I'm a bit antique I'm surrounded by them here with a vase that's so expensive. It's in a glass case. And in the film snippets they put on YouTube of this interview, the church, the vase is as big as Gerard Colsey presiding bishopric's head on the screen. And they are telling the most people who are so poor they have to choose between feeding their children and tithing to pay the tithing to this rich church anyway. And that's a lie because the actual policy of the church is no, they won't. The first thing a bishop's meant to do is tell you to get your extended family to feed your children and pay your bills. In effect, that they, whether they're members of the church or not, should pay your tithing for you or take the hit financially from doing that when you're desperately poor. And the church has a colonial system whereby if you're in a developing country, they won't give you welfare anyway. They have severe restrictions on the welfare that they'll pay for because they don't want to create a dependency culture in poor countries. So if you're in the first world, like me in Britain or in America, yeah, we'll pay your bills, we'll pay your rent, we'll pay your mortgage payment, we'll pay food, we'll pay your utilities. They won't do that for the poorest of the poor. It's And when you start to just open your eyes and see this system for what it is and how they have so little sense of how they are coming across that in defending the shameful accumulation of wealth be far beyond our needs and wanting it to just keep growing, they have to, something in their adult brain insisted on them saying out loud on film to the world's press, if you're starving, pay tithing. They've, they have no effing clue about anything, do they, really? They don't understand what the Great Depression was and they don't understand what monsters they look like saying that while sitting on a mountain of gold. And just, you can't, this, you can't, it's incomprehensible. Even I'm lost for words. Well, it would be bad enough just as it is, but especially Mm. throwing in the idea that they are self-proclaimed representatives and even apostles of Jesus Christ and saying that makes it all the more horrendous. Well, do you know what they, in that interview, this is what's so delicious about it. They they referenced Joseph saving seven years for the lean years and they referenced the widow's might. And I think they also referenced um, the other sort of key New Testament scripture about your talents. Mm -hmm. So they literally do not even understand Jesus's most basic teachings about financial management. What Jesus was teaching about the widow's might, if you keep reading, is he was excoriating the Pharisees for taking that widow's last money. One of the things he criticized them for was taking widow's houses on false religious pretenses. So their interpretation is everyone should pay their last penny to the church. They've completely missed the whole point of that. They, the, the saving in the fat years for the lean years, um, the uh, Washington Post interviewer who interviewed the presiding bishopric and the manager of the Enzyme Peak Fund once it got revealed by the brave whistleblowers, um, 
they they were very canny and they 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 got all these quotes from them saying exactly the same things you know we're saving this so that the church's operations can keep running during times of need and then they asked or they commented and researched about what happened in the 2008 crash or whenever that was and oh no what actually happened is they raised raised the money they charged people for for going on a mission, they closed, they economized, they tightened their belt, they shut down the, the mission homes, the training centers. They, they at some point around then fired the janitors and told the members of the church to clean everything at the chapel in the few minutes you have between your callings instead of your own house, because um, we can't afford janitors. I mean, my giddy aunt. And so, and, and they've just done it again. They're sitting there defending this, having all this money during, but during the COVID instead of subsidizing the missionaries to keep it going, they raised the amount the poor families have to pay from $400 a month to $500 a month, which is nothing compared to a hundred billion dollars, a hundred thousand million dollars. It's the scale of all you need to know about how utterly devoid of inspiration or even basic humanity or imagination these people have become. Um, and one can argue about how much that's their personal moral failing or whether they're just pros products of this system that we've got to reconfigure somehow, is that it just hasn't occurred to them that they could spend this money to save the church. They could buy Welling Ward a chapel they could fund a youth program. They could stop impoverishing and guilt tripping the poorest members. And, and one of the things I'm, I'm going to be going into in my episodes is just the education system. They're, they're hoarding money into the perpetual education fund. They're not actually giving it to people in need. They're creating a seed fund to then give people a tiny percentage of the interest it raises. And then charge them and, interest on the interest. And then charge them in, and then charge them. But if you are a white middle-class American, you can go to the Brigham Young University. They will, your, your university fees there are half the average of American university. American universities are ludicrously overpriced. Like with that money, you could pay the entire fee of, of a British student at university. And ours are quite expensive. Um, and they don't have to pay it back. So they're 10 to 15% of every penny that every member of the church pays in tithing goes straight to the four church universities. And they're all in America, BYU, Idaho, BYU, Provo, BYU, Hawaii, and the business college they keep renaming. And that's a total of, I think about 90,000 students. The vast majority of them are white middle-class Americans. BYU Provo is in the bottom 1% for social mobility of American universities. That means a tiny percentage of their student intake come from the bottom 20% of income. So BYU, I, the BYUs are already predominantly servicing students from middle-class families. And Provo, you know, has quite stringent academic requirements to get in. I love all this, by the way. I'm a British imperialist. I'm all about exploiting the poor of the world to make yourself rich in your own already rich country. It's brilliant. <laughs> I was born at BYU. I've got cousins there. Thank you for your kind donations, people of Kenya. Um, <laughs> but, so, but if we were going to pay money which they won't use the 100 billion for, you have to pay an extra donation to the Perpetual Education Fund. 
And a tiny percentage of that eventually gets into the hands of someone in Latin America or Africa or poor bits of Europe or wherever to help them with their education. They're then expected to pay it back with a small interest, which they justify as teaching them to be frugal. I mean, it's inherently systematically racist. The white people, yeah, we'll pay your college funds. You don't have to pay it back. We'll assume you're going to pay lots of tithing and make it up later. But for a tiny fraction of that money, they could entirely educate people in the developing world, like 50 for everyone at American University. And it would change that country, and it would change the church, and it would change those people's lives. And do you know what's happened to the donations of the British saints to the Perpetual Education Fund? Um, on Lysbier's declaration, they'd received in the last four years £800,000, also £4 million um, towards the International Aid Fund over the last four years. They're all still in a bank account. I'm sitting, I was sitting as Ward Clark, counting in these incredibly generous donations to the Perpetual Education Fund and the International Aid Fund from pensioners, amazing, faithful, elderly people who really should be spending it on themselves. And they're giving this money and they watch telly and they see humanitarian disasters and they think, I helped that. Our church is always the first there to help these people in need. Well, unfortunately, in Britain, if you're going to have your tax breaks as a charity, you have to declare your accounts to the Charity Commission website so you can look it up. And you can see that that money has just been sitting in a bank account for the last four years, growing and growing. And of the international aid funds out of four million, the only payment to who knows where was 15 grand, something like that. So they'd like, they're, they're even making an enzyme peak in my country with the literal widow's mites and not giving it to the people that they promised they were giving it to. I mean, that's fraud. That's fraud. That's, that's claiming to be a charity and taking money from people as charitable donations for a cause and then just earning interest on it. I've been I released have... as Ward Clark since I mentioned that a few too many times. <laughs> <laughs> I am I mean... astonished by this news, and I think probably many of my listeners will be too. It is amazing the information mm. you have and the incredible way you have of framing and articulating that information, which mm. is so powerful to me and which gives me such deeper insights than I had prior to listening to you. I could go on like this for hours today, but we've got and, to I, and, I, and I must give credit, the fact that was researched by a guy who's a sort of less active math teacher who's followed the finances. All these facts I've thrown have come from a lot of people doing the hard work to do the research and then share them in social media, and then you can fact check them and you can go to source. So thank you, I appreciate that. My skill, I guess, is bringing it together and looking at the big picture. But I really want to emphasize this is like a hive mind thing. This is a collective cry of frustration and pain and in outrage from thousands and thousands of active and less active and ex-members of this church. Um, we can do so much better. Sorry, go, go back to praising me. Thank you. <laughs> I was praising you in, as a way of uh, moving out of the episode and toward the end. But I do yeah. want to thank you very much for coming on the show today, Peter. I know there's an eight-hour time difference. Mm. You are eight hours ahead of me. Yep. And uh, it's just been wonderful. And I think my audience is really going to love it. Once again, everybody's listening. If you like what Peter has been saying, and I think that you will, please go to his Facebook page, Peter Bleakley, B-L-E-A-K-L-E. 
K L E Y. And listen to his three most recent podcasts, parts one, two, and three, all titled Christians versus Pharisees. And you're going to love it just the way I did. Peter, once again, thank, thank you, you very much. It's oh. been a privilege. Thank you. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.